Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. Graham McMillan and I are coming at you with both barrels blazing, and by both I mean more than two, and by barrels I mean hours of answering your questions from a few weeks back. Yes, it only takes us two hours and 40 minutes to answer almost everyone's questions. We actually talk so long, Graham turns into cosmic buzzing seafoam at the very end. But answer them we do, scheduling an artistic teams on DC, New 52 titles we like and want to see, the New 52 Threat or Menace Marvel movies, costumes and superhero films, alternate sexual relationships in comics, 2000 AD, and Shonen Jump Alpha, our favorite books of the 80s, a moment in Defenders number 3 I totally blew past, J.M. Dematius's The Defenders book from way back when, The Shadow, The Red Circle, Milestone, and other comics lines, X-Men franchises versus Teen Titans, speculation over the changes in the Marvel dance card, real-world landmarks and imaginary worlds, favorite Superman, Doctor Who, John Byrne's Fantastic Four, Downton Abbey comics, and, as you're probably used to by now, much, much more. (laughs) Hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff Lester, this is how it is. We are going to finish these questions or die trying. Wow, really? Die trying? Doesn't that put the stakes a little high? Okay, how about hurt trying? Okay, I can definitely go for hurt trying. Like, I'll totally agree to, like, stub my toe. I feel like I totally missed out a step. I feel like the meme trying or something should yeah, be yeah, in yeah. there. But instead, I just went straight hurt. It's like, you know, we're gonna die or we'll have a slight headache. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, mild migraine trying, you know. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. Let's not go for meme. I'll be honest, I don't think I would have been down with that either. I don't really? Okay, so I, I basically I just jumped to where you were willing to agree to. Right to my comfort level. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I'm willing that's... to, yeah. And by hurt, I really mean discomfort, but I'm assuming you do too, so. Oh, yeah, I don't mean real hurt, because that, that would, who would, who would volunteer for that? Seriously. Exactly, right, exactly. That just seems dumb, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. That, that's, no, I mean, I, I'm basically talking, you know, the sort of thing that you can go and maybe lie down for half an hour and then you'll be fine. Yeah, that sounds or right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so we're going to get through these or have to go lie down for half an hour trying. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to get through these or basically be very apologetic again. Yeah, exactly. Exactly like like never before, but really cuz really we have a lot of these to do. Yeah, for sure. Okay, you need to adjust your volume, I think. I do. Do I need to go up or down? Uh, down. You're 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 loud and sassy and how about now? In our face. Okay, that's a little too low. How about now? Ah, nice. There you go. Okay. Okay. Now, now I know. I'll I'll try and remember this for future. Also, I I may just be loud in general. I've actually got a really sore throat, and one of the things I tend to do when I have a really sore throat is speak louder. I don't really? know why. Huh. That's that's impressively anti-intuitive. I yes, exactly. Gonna... Well, if it's if it's horrendously sore, I I croak like everyone else. But when it's sort of tickly sore, like it is right now, I have the tendency to sort of speak like this a lot. I really don't <laughs> you're like screw you sore voice i will win i can see you sort of doing that that makes sense thanks i like how you see me as being just weirdly bitter towards a sore throat <laughs> i'll let you win it, it seems how you roll it Damn seems it. it's it does not seem inaccurate <clears throat> uh, okay so should we let's let's just, let's just jump right in and then yeah exactly we can it. i'm sure we'll digress as we go along, oh god but. we're totally going to you can tell yeah. uh george asks what is the marvel stunt after avengers versus x-men 
Uh, well, we think it's the reboot, or do you think there's another one in there? I thought the other one I, might I, be in a... I thought there might the be another one of, like, and now the Phoenix arrives, but I'm beginning to suspect, just from mm-hmm. all the solicits, that the Phoenix is going to arrive at the end of Avengers X-Men. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or early enough in, and it becomes a whole, like, making, remaking matter there. I yeah, think. I think so. Although, my they're definitely going to reboot or do something like that has been slightly thrown off by seeing uh, actually a couple of interviews with Matt Fraction where he talks about plans for Defenders and Iron Man Mm -hmm. as basically last like thinking at least until the end of the year Mm -hmm. well but but Avengers starts up in what eight weeks and is six months long it's more no 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 it's 12 issues and it's not going to be bi-weekly but it's not going to be monthly right no it is bi-weekly no or it, it's, it's twice a month okay because I thought actually it's funny I was talking with Hibbs about that and I thought the schedule that they had committed to was not a a, a twice monthly one yeah it's but. twice or at least it's been twice a month so far I'm fairly sure it was announced as twice a month okay well so that's really close to the end of the year you know? Yeah, but um, I, I, I don't know. I think that I, just I, and I might be entirely wrong. I just got the impression that Fraction was talking about projections of books past the endpoint of Avengers X Men, and, and that could be. That could totally be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, I, um, in fact, I was talking with Hibbs yesterday, and he said that when he was talking with uh, David Gabriel at, I think, at the Comics Pro thing, Gabriel was like, yeah, no, it's it's not a reboot. And he's like, okay, but it's a reboot, right? And then he's like, no, 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 no not a reboot. Not, not a reboot. No, but to be fair, DC also said that about the New 52. Yeah, exactly. Do you remember DC so, were like, it's not a reboot yeah, because exactly. Green Lantern's the same. <laughs> Well, because because there's some sort of weird... I don't understand why this is the case. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, the term reboot, which to me... I mean, I'm sure, of course, there's the, the computer sense of the term, but I really feel the, that comics really carried the, con- the, the reboot concept uh, long enough until it crossed over to the mainstream, you know? Yeah, definitely. But do you think there's... there's uh... A problem I'm, that comics fans have with reboots, then? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, well, I, this is based on my idea that you you were kind of like, you're like, yeah, if Marvel co- does a reboot or they call it a reboot, it's kind of an admission of defeat, I suppose. And sort of similarly, I think when DC had already rebooted the universe so many times, it, it was important to them not to call it a reboot. But they're like, no, 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 it's a relaunch where things are different, like a reboot. I, yeah. I think I think the problem with Marvel doing it at this point is that everyone would just say they're copying DC. Yeah. Whether they call it a reboot or not, I think that yeah. that's, that will happen. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's going to be the case as well. But I also, who knows, I also maybe think that's why they're like... Mm-hmm. I, I feel like Marvel is kind of in a damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. Exactly. Because no matter what exactly. they do, everyone's going to be like, well, you're just doing that because of DC. No matter what they do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the only thing they can, they can do to escape that is not do anything. Well, and I right, I which I think it would be a huge mistake for them based on their sales things. I really, honestly think that a reboot for them that's not just a line like back when we were talking line wide renumbering. I, I I definitely and again 
having spoken recently with Hibbs, he always bends my my thinking a little bit his way. But he's like, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. You just can't. He's like the no one's in, going to be interested if it's a line wide renumbering. They they've got to do a reboot. They've never done it, you know. They haven't done anything like a crisis thing, and they're they he, his thing was like they've got to do something because they're you know they're just rotting you know from the inside. I uh, I I'm going back and forth on this because mm-hmm. part of me just thinks it will eventually right itself to the point where. Marvel will find a level. I dude, their but numbers are so far well, low it's, below. It's not that, just that; you know? it's also seeing the solicits that came out this week. Mm-hmm. There is no creative continuity in the books anymore. Wow! Like, like oh, it's not true. Oh, the right, yeah, yeah. The you mean the creative continuity? You yes. mean from teams, the yes. teams on the books? Right? There's no exactly. such thing as a regular artist on, may, apart from maybe like two books. Mm-hmm. Even rotating art teams. Daredevil was announced as a rotating art team of uh, Paolo Rivera and Marcos Martin. Right. By issue 12, Daredevil will have had five different art teams. Yes. Though, I have to say, although I, who knows when the staging is, but I always feel like that's not necessarily the best example, because, or really a best case example. Well, I mean, isn't that because Martin jumped out to do Saga, right? Uh, no, he's not doing Saga. He's doing something else with... With uh, Vaughn. With Vaughn. Oh, um, but no, it's. Of not I, it might be. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you can also look at Uncanny X Men, which has had four artists in its first four issues. Right, which is crazy. That is insane. I think oh, that is the. Which yeah, got that had is, even yeah. more. Oh yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. No, 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 no. Right. They're they're kind of a mess. They're kind of a mess, and I don't know if that mess is them gearing up to try and do this double shipping thing where they're trying to... I think it's got to be. Mm-hmm. I think seeing things like Zeb Wells not being an Avenging uh, Spider-Man... See, that's one that I don't get. I can get the art I team being weird. because it's double shipping. I think... I genuinely think it's... He can probably write a book a month, mm-hmm. but he's having to write ahead because of double shipping. And so they've taken him off the book for a couple of months. Wow. Right. Which means he's working ahead... By having, by not being, yeah, now. but as opposed to yeah. being off the book, um, yeah, exactly. But you know, you've got Rick Remender all of a sudden is co-writing Venom, mm-hmm. and I think, oh no, 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 wait, he was on Venom. It's somebody else. It's Colin Bunn, right? Isn't that what uh, you were talking well, he's about? He's co-writing with Colin Bunn. Was Colin Bunn there originally? No, no, no. Or? It's Remender, and now Colin Bunn's joined in. Gotcha. Okay, I'm uh, confused. But yeah, and I think we're going to see more of that sort of thing as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like Brubaker's um, Captain America and Bucky. Mm-hmm, the second mm-hmm. storyline, he was decided, he was saying publicly, like, you know, I'm not really that involved. <laughs> wow. You know? Or when Bendis launched Secret Avenger, uh, not Secret Avenger, Secret Warriors. Mm-hmm, His name was mm-hmm. the first six issues. And then when you talk to him now, he's like, yeah, I, I pretty much read what Jonathan wrote. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of that where there's going to be big name writer and smaller name writer. Mm-hmm. And it will be mm-hmm. essentially be like big name writer gives you know one line of direction and mm-hmm. reads the finished script. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we'll see what happens with that. We'll see what happens with that. I personally think that they're, especially after our talk the other week, like I kind of feel they're overextended. Um, I just feel like they're, you know, and, and especially the whole architect thing is, wow. Which reminds me, I read uh, two issues of Bendis' Avengers in the shop, and they were bad. 
And I have to say, I was less than impressed. I think Vince's adventures, the, the wheels have fallen off dramatically. Yeah, so yeah. Really quickly. Is that just mm-hmm. me? Like, I feel like he had a consistent level of, at the very least, it was interesting, even if it was an interesting failure. Mm-hmm. Right up until, like, a year ago. Hmm. That is that is something I will, as you know, will have to take. I will have to take your word on. I don't know. I just I, I feel like all of a sudden it's kind of like, huh, this is actually not good. As opposed to before, it was like, well, I could see what he was going for, but he couldn't <laughs> right. wait. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I feel that was Bendis's Avengers baseline before, with mm-hmm. the exception of Avengers Disassembled, which was just immense, right, yeah, which was just terrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like I feel like it was always more interesting than it is now. Fun of mm-hmm. way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, George, probably a reboot. I'm trying to keep us on target, Jeff. Yes, no, I think that's smart. I'm glad we circled back to that. Yes. Um, do you think consolidation of the 52 under less and less creators, Leafields, Jurgens, Jones, etc.? Who's Jones? Which, who's the Jones of Mar- DC? I, I don't know. Is Bruce Jones working on a title? I don't. Maybe. No, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, It's a financial decision to churn out more material with less creative talent cost. Um, No, because you'll still have. You're paying by the page. Yeah, you're paying by the page. You're paying guys. I I I think that it's more the sense of um, it's it's easier to keep everyone roped in and quote unquote on target. Yeah, it's it's easier to keep a consistent voice, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. when you have essentially more people doing or other less people doing more work exactly yeah uh, what books do you hope for in a third wave of the new 52 after Earth 2 and Dial H and which creators would you like involved but have not been involved so far well um, do, you, do you have uh, do you have some answers for that um I don't know. I've been thinking a lot recently about minor DC characters, but not necessarily ones that I would want to see carry their own book. Interesting. Um, I really don't. I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind I, of... I can say this. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want it to be... One of the things that makes me sad about the six new launches mm-hmm. is that I feel that sneaking another Batman book in there is kind of a shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um... Here's one I'd like. I'd like more milestone books. I'd like someone to revive Shadow Cabinet. Uh, mm. or I'd like someone to do something with hardware. Mm. I think both of those are entirely viable concepts in the way the New 52 is set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and if that were the case, I'm tempted to say John Rosen, but that worked out so well last time. Uh, yeah, boy. Poor guy. Poor I'd want to see Walt Simonson case. writing. Mm-hmm. I, would, I would quite happily read hardware with Walt Simonson writing it. Oh, what a lovely that's that's a lovely little suggestion you've cobbled together. That would actually make a great little pick, I think. And he could do covers and someone else can do interiors. There you go. Mm-hmm. Ding. <laughs> Ding. Uh, Finished. Uh, yeah, exactly. I uh, you know, this is gonna sound weird, but um I would actually like to see more of the I guess what I think of is the 90s bat office talent come back to the DCU, the new 52, but not on bat books. So really, I would be very happy to see, believe it or not, Chuck Dixon um, and Devin Grayson um, both oh, have love shots. To, yeah, Devin Grayson come back. You know, at uh, some characters. I don't know. As for whom, though, I'm never, I'm never sure. You know, I mean, of course, I've always got like... 
you know, I have my little secret cabinet of secret DC characters that I just, you know, unabashedly adore, but I'm never quite necessarily happy when they come back. Like, like I've, I haven't checked out this new Challengers of the Unknown that DiDio's doing. Um, and I, I really do adore the Challengers of the Unknown, a tremendous deal. And it actually got pretty good word of mouth uh, from the AV Club comic review guys the, um, which kind of shocked me the preview of like the first I want to say it was only like three or four pages um, mm-hmm. was actually much better than I expected <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, so I might actually give that a try I'm kind of shocked by the idea that DiDio has somehow found something that has suited him in the new 52 somehow, well I mean which o- is, again, right exactly and I guess that's what I mean I, I don't mean I don't mean a title I mean a an approach mm-hmm. an approach that seems to be you know he made that that omac was quite charming and enjoyable and that it, that might actually work as well in um in this challenge of the unknown thing which compared to some of the stuff that you were reading me from whatever book it was it outsiders, outsiders that he was writing yeah it just sounded i was just like i never would have outsiders had this weird charm and actually i have to admit I think a lot of Dedeo's writing has this really weird charm that has never quite found its home until mm-hmm. until Omak, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a funnier writer than he's given credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think he needed to find a, a book that would let him be appropriately funny and not forced yeah. funny. And, and not what funny? Forced funny, not... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's got a lot of forced like, funny. Doing exactly. shtick. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, well, we'll see. Yeah. So, uh, I, also, I would, I would kind of like to see. Uh, I don't know. Weirdly enough, I, a, a different view of Rose and the Thorn, I guess, than the Gail Simone version. You know, I've always liked Rose and the Thorn. I don't think I've necessarily. I wasn't so crazy about her version per se. Um, and uh, to borrow the, the the what I call the Macmillan maneuver, I would like to see Catherine Eminem writing a Lois Lane book. Oh God, yes, yeah. yes, yes, I think, yes. Um, I think that would be great. Not a new book, but just someone I was thinking yesterday that I really want to get over to DC. Mm-hmm. I want to see Chris Sumney drop Superman. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm kind of at the stage I, I, I where I'd want to see Chris Sumney see it, it, draw anything. Yeah, you know. But I was just but, thinking yesterday. So. I really want him to draw Superman. Yeah. For some reason, I would feel I would want him to draw the Super Friends, you know, like if you had like a Super Friends book drawn by Chris Somney and like written by Chris Robertson or something like that, I think that would be pretty sweet. Yep, I'd buy that. Yeah, me too. And it doesn't even have to be like a kid all ages thing. It would just be a a non Justice League Justice League. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, I like think that would be quite enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see. T says, I'm curious as to what kind of results you think DC has to have a year or two after the reboot in order for the reboot to be considered a success. I personally am 100% convinced the reboot simply can't succeed because of the Didio brain trust behind it. The exact same people who drove the company into the ground with their short-sightedness. But I'm curious about when and by what metric we can consider the DC experiments to have failed. (laughs) Yeah, I know, exactly. That's a a subtle, like, a... Completely unbiased question. Um, I'm not anti-reboot in principle. I just think this particular one was poorly planned and rushed, and as the result of a, as a result was a blown opportunity. Um, I think the success will be if a year. They still have. I think it's still have half the top ten in a year. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good metric. I mean, that's the problem. If you look at the charts and you look at the first three months, um, I just I think it's still being considered a, a larger success than people had planned. Yeah, I, I I think when you get to the the January sales and they own the entire top ten. Yeah, I, I, that, in January. That's a, that's a success. It yeah. it just is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and. It's one of those things where it might not be a creative success, mm-hmm. but it's quite clearly done what it's meant to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, so I, yeah, I think that I think actually I think Graham, that's perfect. Like putting mentioning the because I think I think the numbers are really squirrely. I mean, you know, the fact that the numbers keep dropping on those books is hard. Is kind of a little hand wringing for everyone, but. The fact is, sales seem to be going down kind of across the board. Yeah, that's just ways, it. It's, it's, it feels think. really... It feels like missing the point to say, well, look at the sales drop, you know, the sales drop from December to January when yeah. you consider that Marvel's apparently dropped more. Yeah, exactly. You know, and we're not sure if what, that's what is happening with the market is that is what you have to look at. You have to look at it yeah. in a context. Um, yeah. I think it worked. I think it was poorly planned and I think it was rushed. Mm-hmm. And it may end up being a blown opportunity compared with what it could have been, but I don't think it's failed. No, I don't think so either. I don't think it is either at this point. And we'll see. Could be another case. One of the things that I think is interesting for me is I'll be curious to see in this, what things look like in a year in terms of like how many of the creative teams are still there, how many people are still doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, because well, I, I, I think. I think mm-hmm. they've already set the tone of we have no problem with replacing the entire creative team. Right. Right, which is uh which makes sense for the stuff that's not working or that I didn't I didn't get much of a sense anyone felt was working, but I think would be harder for books that people do think are working. Sure, it'll be very interesting to see for example if Scott Snyder decides he doesn't want to do Batman anymore, what happens to Batman? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or what's going to happen to Justice League when Jeff when Jim Lee leaves? Because exactly. Jim Lee's most likely not going to be on that book a year from now. Right, right. Yeah. So what happens when he leaves? What happens when you've got guys, especially since the books that I'm enjoying have, um, really where the artist has a lot more input? Like, what happens if Francis Manipal doesn't want to do Flash? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think they sleeve Zachman. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, some of those characters, some of those people seem pretty crucial, uh, especially, especially with the idea that DC seems to be more interested in getting the artists involved on the writing side of things, which I think is great. But somehow makes the numbers, somehow I feel like makes the books more vulnerable to turnover. Yeah. You know? No, I, I think I think you're one hundred percent correct. So. Um, you know, in that sense, something like Aquaman, like you have two guys to lose that can change the equation, but something like Flash, you really, all apologies to Brian Bucoletto aside, you really only have the one guy who, if you lose him, like you don't know where the book's, what's going to happen to the book, essentially. What would be fascinating is if Francis Manipo leaves the Flash and it turns out that it is Brian Bucoletto who is like everything you like about the book. <laughs> Like exactly. Proved. What is that? <laughs> I don't understand these. I figured the multi-panel page layouts would be gone, but they're even more brilliant than before. Huh? 
Okay. Jerry Smith asks, what Marvel B character should get his or her own movie next? Not will, but should. Should. Mm, that's a toughie. I, I mean, it's a toughie for me because I haven't considered it for a while. Um, my... I. Doctor Strange has like one of the best origin stories ever and therefore ha- would have one of the best first movies ever. Um, I've always adored Iron Fist and always figure that someday, sooner or later, they're going to figure out a way to do, you know, Kung Fu superpowers in a way that's it's going to work and draw people. And I, you know, I, every, I, I love every bit and piece of Skull the Slayer the superhero so and I think he would translate either amazingly well or he would tank out at like a Scott Pilgrim like level Um, but I would still adore I'd still love to see that it's so funny to say that I was watching Scott Pilgrim again the other night and just being like this film's great why was (laughs) every single time I watch it I'm like how can anyone who likes films not like this film Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just such a love letter to cinema Anyway, um, Luke Cage is my thing, if only because mm. I think I think if you do it right, mm-hmm. it could be an awesome film and a hit. Not a massive Iron Man-sized hit, but mm-hmm. I think you could also make it for so much less money. Right. Um, but Doctor Strange could be great. Mm-hmm. Doctor Strange could be legitimately spectacular. Yeah. Especially if you do what the comics have never done, which is come up with an actual story for Doctor Strange. <laughs> no, but if, if you'd spend some time beforehand to come up with a three-movie story, mm-hmm. essentially rise, you know, him and his mm-hmm. fall, I think it could be awesome. Over th- Wait, you do the rise and the fall over three movies? Is yeah. that what you're saying? you have an origin story. You have, like, Doctor Strange as Sorcerer Supreme in the second movie, and then you have something horrible happening to him and killing him in the last movie. Oh, and killing him in the last movie. Why yes. would you do that? Because then someone else can become the Sorcerer Supreme. You can have Doctor Voodoo or whatever. Whoa, dude! What? Oh, maybe. <laughs> Did I tell you my spectacular uh, thing that I thought of while having acupuncture the other day? No. A benevolent voodoo acupuncture therapist. So oh. people are just walking down the street, and all of a sudden they go, "My neck, my neck!" Oh, I feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant, Graham. <laughs> it's funny. I, I feel so much less blocked in my arm <laughs> exactly. than I did before. But wow. I have no idea what's happened. All of a sudden, just like it was a stopping pain. Oh, I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> just brilliant. Just brilliant, Graham. Good plan. Uh, but yeah, you're wrong about the Doctor Strange thing. So, uh, but Yeah. Um, and, and of course, if we had the time, I would like run down my alphabetical list of characters, Marvel B char- great characters I'd want to see a movie of. But um, but I'll just leave it at the three. Should movie superhero costumes be reasonably more like the comics and not all that black ninja crap? Hmm. Well, when you phrase it like that, uh, I, I, I'm still torn. Like on the one hand, I I'm, I don't... I'm still thinking black ninja crap to be honest. Yeah, I think so too. If you try and do, here's the thing: Have you seen the photographs from the Avengers? The, the, I've, the, I've seen a few. Mm-hmm. Captain America looks ridiculous. Doesn't he look bad? He Captain looks America. markedly worse than everyone else. Yes, and that's mm-hmm. why Black Ninja Craft. Yeah. Because Captain yeah. America, they've made it closer to the, the comic, and it looks so much worse than he does in his first movie. 
Yeah, they should have really stuck to the first movie look. I really was like, I was looking at those pictures. I'm like, did they go back to the Reb Brown TV movie look? Like, this is terrible. It looks like really far. I don't know why they did that. I mean, I know why they did it because they were like, oh, the fans will love this and we're going to modify it, make it more like it. But you see a shot of him uh, and it really is like, you know, Jeremy Renner looks so much better and more awesome in just an everyday way when you put him next to the guy who looks like he should be like dancing with a sign about your taxes. You know yeah, what I mean? It's, like it's, it's- it's just a horrible, horrible mistake. So yeah, I'm sorry, Jerry Smith. I'm going with Black Ninja Crab because I, I am too. I, yeah. I really think you can't pull off a, a costume. I I kind of liked what they did with. Uh, I I I really feel like the costume choices in X Men First Class were pretty good, though. I do have to say that. I thought I thought they worked. I mean, for the most part, it was just ordinary clothes. But I think at some point they had their version of the. The Xavier's uniform or whatever toward the end and I was like, yeah, by this point, it's fine and that being said, yet as soon as Magneto put on that helmet, he looked bad so I mean, I don't know, it's tuff I personally feel as much as I love that stuff that's a lot of that stuff is only designed to look good in two dimensions Yeah, half the time, drawn by Jack Kirby or uh, otherwise you get the Green Lantern movie or for example, the Superman movie I think Superman is going to be in real trouble because yeah, he's, he's essentially wearing his costume and, and yeah, I don't yeah. think people are going to buy it yeah, yeah, no, it just it, it it looks it looks bad. The Green Lantern stuff, I don't know. Like they came close. They, I think they almost could have carried it off. Actually, was I swear to God with Green Lantern, I'm looking back on it. I'm like, maybe they should have just gone full CGI for that. I don't know, because I Sinestro Sinestro still works for me for that movie, you know, and he's so in the level of doesn't really exist. Bill, you know what I mean? No, that's actually what Mark Strong looks like. They just put an awful lot of makeup on him for other movies. Ah, see, I saw him in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and he was a weird-looking guy in that movie, and that explains it. They were covering up the Sinestro look. but That's, uh, it's, that's when you see the John Carter trailer. Just look for his little pointy ears. It, it's, oh, it's is, re- he in the John, is he in John Carter? Of, of course. Yeah, Mark Strong's in everything. Yeah, hmm. he's in John Carter. Pretty much it looks like playing Sinestro. <laughs> Oh, okay. Oh, right, right. I think I remember his line now, because, right, yeah, right. Anyway, huh. Uh, Jerry Smith then asks a question that, no offense, Jerry, really made me mad, which is, do gay or alternate uh, sexual lifestyles belong in superhero comics? Sure, why not? Yeah, I mean, let's put it this way. I'm going to put it this way. I think they belong there as much as straight sexual lifestyles do. If that exactly. Sense. Yeah, that's exactly my point. Is I'm kind of like it's either all for one or none for all. Because I, I actually think there is a good case that can be made to saying that 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 um, no sexual romances. Yeah, no sexual yeah. lifestyle in superhero comics. I can actually, to me, it then kind of gets interesting again and weird. Um, but yeah, once it gets opened up, yeah, you've got to you've kind of got to open it up for everyone. So. Uh, what company or writer handles them well, and who does not? Uh, alternate sexual relationship lifestyles in comics? superhero comics. In superhero comics, I'm gonna I say I think James Robinson actually does a nice job with Starman. By which I mean the character Starman, the one who's the blue one who's now Starman. Right. Um, I think it, it's. I think he's surprisingly, considering some of his other traits, non-sensationalistic about it, and very hmm. matter of fact. Hmm. And he's gay. See, because I don't. Know yeah. That. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Um, and it and it's it's not 
I'm gay is not like Northstar, for I am gay. Yes. Um, it's Yeah, there's one that doesn't handle it well. Scott yeah. Lobdell. Although apparently mm-hmm. I've heard lots of people say really good things about whatever the car- the new Teen Titan is that's gay that he's introduced. I've heard a mm-hmm. lot of people be really fa- uh, favourable about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I, I think James Robinson's Starman is really just... It treats it like a relationship as opposed to a gay relationship, if that makes sense. Right. Um, which, which I really which appreciate. Which is really the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I seem to recall I felt like Peter David did did gay and alternate relationships pretty well, I think. I feel like he, uh, I feel like he did, and now he's getting a bit cute with it. Uh, I, I could, but see, and this is the problem. The reason why I really can't answer this question is I just don't read enough superhero comics. You know, like the stuff that I read, I'm sort of like the only thing that comes to mind is Batwoman, which I think is just not well handled. Generally, yeah, I, I think Batwoman. Really... I, I think Batwoman in general has. Uh, it's, it's, when Rocco was writing it I thought he mm-hmm. handled it really well and also yeah. um, Renee the question I think he handles her mm-hmm. very well as well and he handles it very well in Gotham Central but the, the current Batwoman series I don't know there's just something about it that I feel like I feel like they're trying to simultaneously be sensational and tasteful right exactly which sort of feels like the way that mm, most comic book writers tend to handle it I think and it somehow just doesn't really work for me I think in a weird way what's happening is you have people who think that it's sensational trying to handle it tastefully Mm -hmm. and I think that's where the tension comes from yeah exactly that they're thinking of it as other right right exactly so so their attempts to not play it as other becomes Mm -hmm. this really weird thing yeah 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 so yeah i'm not i'm not i'm not such a not such a fan i guess of the way that it's being handled i still think that it's important i hope that it continues to improve i feel like it's improved since the 80s so that's like a good thing uh jerry smith continues should dc trash the new 52 and go back to last year's continuity I think we kind of covered this last time, didn't we? I think we did. I think we did. Well, sort of. Did we? I, I, there was a variation of it. Um, um, I was don't, like, I don't do we miss should. the old? Yeah. I yeah. I, I, yeah. I think... Mm-hmm. I, actually, that's true. not true. Even if I hated the New 52, they still shouldn't. Yeah, agreed. Like, they have to stick with this. Yeah. I think it would yeah. be a disaster if they, they dumped it. Um, why does DC... Th- this is another completely non-biased question. Why does DC think hiring mediocre Marvel writers from the 90s and giving Rob Liefeld three books to write is okay? Do they honestly <laughs> think that this will sell more books and bring in more readers? I'm going to say no. They're actually choosing that strange sell less books and make less money strategy that publishers occasionally favor as a way to keep us on our toes. <laughs> Um, I, I, of course, they think it's going to sell more books and bring in more readers. I, it, yeah. it is interesting though that I think DC or Bob Harris or whoever thinks that Rob Liefeld is a bigger sales draw than he actually is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I and and again, because bear mind, Hawkins yeah. was cancelled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, and what they might be thinking is, is like, well, those characters, they weren't necessarily like, they they were Liefeld, not, do, you know, we just brought them, we didn't have enough imagination. I will say that, that to temper the question is, I do think, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a the ability for editorial to 
quote unquote trust or work closely with the talent is a big factor. And I think, you know, as it is everywhere. So I think that there is a little bit of a case of, um, you know, I, I still think wherever DC's head is at, they're not going to be like, hey, if we got Mark Miller in here, we'd be selling 90,000 copies of any, you know, 130,000 copies of whatever we should do this. You know, mm-hmm. I definitely think that they have a, a, a stronger sense of like we we're going with people that we we sort of can work with. Like that's as important a factor as as how much sales they have because there isn't really anyone in the marketplace that's drying that is you know just so white hot that they're selling 150,000 copies of whatever they do yeah so. uh, okay Mike Walker says Graham did you pick up those issues of 2008 with Indigo Prime yes I did um, I read Jock's TCG TCJ piece uh, about it and picked up a couple of issues and I really enjoyed it I'm not sure why I haven't picked up the rest it looks like this might be my first ever digital comics purchase. Back issues of 2080 are cheap. That is completely true. Although I uh, met up with Douglas Walk the other day, who pointed out that you can actually buy the physical back issues for 50 pence each on DC on um, 2080's wow. website right now. It's just the shipping will kill right. you. Yeah, see, and this is this is my thing, is is that I don't really think that the 2080 back issues are cheap. I think they are prohibitively expensive. Uh, digitally, yeah, they're I want to say because I worked it out. It's like two twenty five or something. I don't. That's not right, is it? Because I thought it was something like uh, I thought it was something like two pounds or something per back issue. Is it? I thought it was like one twenty something. Uh, I I'm could wrong. be wrong. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Both of us might be wrong. I, I, you, uh, you know, you, they you could, keep answering. They I'm could going be to look. I think yeah. they could be cheaper. I think so. Um, but they're much cheaper than buying the print magazine right now because mm, I want right. to say that's $5 an issue yeah that, I'm not really sure that's really happen, helping me any you know um, me. like I'm like ag- agreed like what I would I, love and mm-hmm. I, I really don't think they're going to do it is if they release their collections digitally mm-hmm. I would definitely buy collections digitally even if they were not cheap I mean I wouldn't mm-hmm. buy them if they were ridiculously expensive either but <laughs> I said this before, one of the problems with 2008 and anthologies in general is it's only as worthwhile as the best strips, as the worst strips, sorry. So if, if you have a, you know, there's five stories every 2008, but three of them are shit. Right. Then I'm not going to buy, I'm not going to pay the $5 or whatever to buy it. Well, and this is an interesting thing. I've read three weeks of 2000 AD, uh, 2000 AD. I've read three weeks of Shonen Jump Alpha now, maybe mm-hmm. four, I guess three. And it's fascinating to me that I, I'm really like I subscribed up for a year. So I'm getting an entire year worth of like 48 issues for like $25. Mm-hmm. So it's something like 50 cents. Um, but even at 99 cents, there's a way in which I'm like, yeah, see, the uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm looking at the... Um, I'm going to try adding the digital copy and seeing what happens. Because it just says, it says, you know, 2000 AD, Prague 1769, £2.25. So I'm like, well, let me try and add that digital copy. Oh, come on, why aren't you going to act like you know what I'm doing here? Because it doesn't know what you're doing, Jeff. It really doesn't. Well, because that button, which I thought was a button... Oh, you're right. It's a dollar fifty-four. Uh, sorry, one pound fifty-four. What is the fifty-four? Is that 
pence. Yeah. When, pound 54 pence so i guess that's like three dollars for a digital issue yeah which is not horrendous uh, yeah I I mean, guess it could be cheaper but it's also not yeah. horrendous because it's yeah, essentially the same right. price as buying something from comiXology yeah i suppose you're right and you do get it in a cbz pdf open format well i don't know if it's open but i'm assuming that it is with that much so yeah no yeah, maybe i'll look into that maybe i'll i'll go crazy and they're having some sort of intergalactic online. Is that the sale? I think that's. About? I think it's yeah, the sale Douglas was talking so. about. Which, uh, if shipping was not horrendous, I would be all over that because what they have as part of that sale, and they don't have digitally, are the 2008 Extreme Editions, which are right. reprints of old stuff mm. for really, really cheap. Can't you just like have it like bought and shipped to your sister and then she can like she can pay for it yeah no i i, I could no, no 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 no. i mean you know like I, I i'm sure that if you had it shipped to her and then she bundled it in like a low freight kind of thing like you know it's the two for cheaper yeah right? i'm sure i could yeah you've got the connections is what i'm saying so that's because i come from there <laughs> <laughs> that's why i have the connections that's it. That's it. Oh, anyway, so, right, Shonen Jump Alpha, what's been interesting is that all these books feel like they're, all the stories, most of the strips feel like they're about to end. Bleach is clearly on its last legs. Naruto's getting near the close. I can't necessarily tell about One Piece. It might very well be going strong. But even Bakuman feels like it's startlingly close to ending, unless they throw some curves in it, uh, me. And I'm like, huh, that's like three of your six strips. I don't know why I think that One Piece is like so close to ending. It probably isn't. But but both Naruto and Bleach, those are kind of big ones out of the strips. And then one strip I just don't care for. And I'm finding myself feeling like, huh, this is a weird... Like if Shonen Jump Alpha had launched, a, you know, really close to the time that, you know, Naruto was at its height and everything like that. I think it would be, like, an amazing book to read, but as it is, I have this weird, like, it feels, and I could be mistaken, like, everything's winding down on this, and I'm like, I wonder if they should have, like, thrown in a couple new, fresher strips, you know, considering they have something like 20 to choose from, from Shonen Jump. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyway. But yes, yeah, uh, anthologies are only as good as the weakest story, unless you're paying like fifty cents an issue for them. In which case, it's like, in My, which case, you're just like, why can't they have republished all the Bakumans by now? I'm going crazy here. <laughs> Mike Walker also says that he doesn't have a question for you, but he did give you a picture of a waffle. Ah, which I think was very nice of him. Yeah, I think that's quite fair. Uh, B.D. Montgomery says, B.D. Montgomery, I've got a problem with letters today. Um, both of you clearly love many comics from the 70s. Are there any comics from the 80s that are, are as near and dear to your hearts? Uh-huh. I, I think a lot of mine are... Have I was I about talked? to say, you're more of an 80s guy than a 70s guy. Yeah, I, I would think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, think it's tough when we talk about stuff like Claremont's X-Men, which blurs across the, the two boundaries, really. Yeah, although for me, that's that's an 80s book. Right. And for me, I think of it as a 70s book, although you're technically, he did far more work in the 80s than he did. No, no, but it's, it's also like that was my period, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah. th- the stuff I like most now, even, is yeah. the stuff from the 80s. Although I think that's heavily informed by nostalgia. Um, right. But basically, like, the, the mid-80s is my Marvel comics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's just I mean, I even have fun memories of the launch of the new universe. 
which we've got to do an all new universe episode at some point that night mask merrick kickers incorporated <laughs> spitfire and the troubleshooters man there's so justice don't forget justice, justice. uh and is that it um, DB7. You left out Starbrand and DB7, right? Yeah, I think that's. I think that is it. And then, of course, you know, it. the pit and the war. And the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's later. You know what I mean? That's like that's that, that doesn't count. That really yeah. doesn't count. Oh, um, but yeah, I, I think there's lots of great comics from the 80s. Yeah, I, and also a lot of my favorite independent comics are from the 80s as well. Uh, I love the Maze Agency um, and Badger. And there's complete silence. Have you got... Uh, uh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm here. Here. I don't know why it was so quiet. I'm just like, it would be great if I was sitting here silently judging you for Badger. But no, I, I, I totally <laughs> get I was like, because I said Maze Agency, isn't it? You're like Mike W. Barr's detective series? No, I totally... Yeah, I flashed on. I was like, huh. I was kind of like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to bring my A-game. No, I, I... You know, there's a lot of stuff during the 80s that I love tremendously. Uh, some of it is a little more alty indie, but a lot of it isn't. Like, you know, fucking... Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, which I adore. What exactly, fact, was... like Warrior. Uh-huh, yeah, I mean... There's... The shit from Warrior, that's all the 80s. Yeah, that's all the 80s stuff. I mean, you know, uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in the 80s that we adore. We should just... It it should be something that I should work harder to, to actually mention. I think I go so quickly to my, my favorite place, which is the 70s, and, and drag you there with me. Um... You know, because it's still such a. It seems to me so. Um, it, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's such an an, an illustrative juxtaposition with what's going on now and where we're at now in some ways. Because you've got guys like Gerber trying to do some of the same, doing do things that other people would later have the freedom to do. Um, oh, you're mentioning of Gerber. Not working. You. Uh, so I haven't read Defenders issue three. Oh, but, I, I did, yeah. But, and I don't know if I'm going to spoil you or not now, I mm-hmm. did read Fraction talking about his plans for Defenders. Uh-huh. Omega the Unknown? Mm-hmm. Son of a bitch. I, yeah, I was going to say, how do you feel about that? I didn't know. I did not know. Really? Uh, you know, I... Well, apparently, it's, apparently it's teased in issue three. It is? There's some sort of, like, Prester John Omega... Omega Prester thing? Yeah, you know, there was an Omega Prester. I mean, there was Prester John, and then there was the different form of Prester John, who admittedly was not speaking, and I did not tip to the idea that he's like an Omega the Unknown figure. I, so, that shame on me, right? Because um, I read through the whole issue, I'm like, what is that, huh? I mean, I finished that issue, and I'm just like, I, I think because I was so busy sort of trying to tear through it so that I could just feel like I could quit the book in good conscience, you know, or bad conscience, but, uh, huh, interesting. Um, I'll have to go back and read it now. That being said, there's nothing that he did in issue three that made me think that it's worth sticking around for. Actually, that is not true. Fraction finally nails down a narrative voice in, um, in issue three that comes far closer to being something that I would be interested in sticking around and reading um and yet considering he burned through like eight dollars of goodwill or whatever i'm not i'm not gonna i'm not gonna stick around for it see that's that's the weird thing when your comics are three dollars whereas sorry four dollars a pop mm-hmm. you really do sort of begrudge people taking their time now 
I found oh, that totally. I found that with Ultimate Spider-Man, the, the most mm-hmm. Ultimate Spider-Man, which I liked the first couple of issues, but mm-hmm. I was like, I don't like you enough. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, I had that after the reading end, the first the issue, issue right. and you're not anywhere near being Spider-Man yet. Yeah, I don't like yeah. you enough to keep buying you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it just is. It's just, it's, it's kind of, it's that weird thing. There's like this, and I, you know, I I have to, it's one of those things that I'm sure I don't stress enough per podcast. Listeners, I, you hear me complain about a lot about price, but I get a discount from Hibs and Comics Experience from having worked there and stuff. So I'm not even paying full price. So that either makes me like completely uh, super cheapy or incredibly duplicitous. All I know is having spent the money that I spent, I'm like, this isn't a big enough return. And yeah, it's taking too long to for people to hit their stride. I don't think that I don't. I really don't feel like the comics industry has the liberty of two practice swings in it anymore you know and i mean i don't i don't feel like that's what they were trying to necessarily do or the but but you know it's one thing if you've got something and it and things just haven't quite gelled and they need to keep coming together um but with fractions defenders i was just like yeah this is uh this is this is it's just it's it's not working for me it's really not working for me also if you want to feel better about fractions defenders do what I did this week and read Essential Defenders Volumes 4 and 5. Sorry, 5 and 6. Ooh, wow. Well, the entire J.M. Dematis run, which is better known as, oh my god, please, I think I want to kill myself. How did this comic not get cancelled? I have to stop reading. Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, make it stop. Yeah, isn't that great? Isn't that, I mean, I remember picking that stuff up, and I did have that moment of like... Picking it like picking it up on the stands when the issue was coming out, and and being like, I am like, it's weird, isn't it? Like it's all this stuff that you feel like you should like, and yet you do not like. You know, like it's it's almost like I mean, here's a guy who really is like clearly inspired by Gerber, um, and yet somehow doesn't. It's 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 just not elegant. It's not subtle. There's stuff in his character that you just kind of don't want to support. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's just it's terrible, and it's uh it's so self indulgent as well, and mm-hmm. self indulgent in the way that any narrative forward momentum is entirely derailed. As he's like, you know what I want to see, mm-hmm. son of Satan come around to Christianity after having Devil Slayer do the same thing that's the problem with, also with reading it in the essentials you read so many of it you're like wait you literally just did this plot with Devil Slayer like 10 issues ago yeah. well if you're reading monthly you'd be like this seems familiar and now realize he'd literally done the same thing um, yeah it's it's. Oh, I mean clearly the 1980s were a very important time in J.M. DeMatteis' life and mm-hmm. it's exploring his spirituality and that's great for him Right. It did not make for great Defenders comics. Yeah, it really didn't. I mean, it was. It, it is that thing. It's like, wow, it is interesting to see somebody who is, um, who is taking sort of that personal agenda, in, you know, with their superhero comics. But it felt, um, it it felt pretty plot hammery. I remember thinking that that he really got there to me, willing to sacrifice a lot of character 
continuity or even internal coherence. Oh yeah, he'd sacrifice anything in order to save yes. every plot he decided he wanted to say. And the plots are are weirdly uncompelling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is is very strange. And also, yeah. literally by the end of Volume Six, maybe the last half. Mm-hmm. He's decided he doesn't like the book Defenders, and he's en route to turning it into New Defenders. Mm-hmm. There's at least ten issues of him just not liking the book he's writing. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just... Oh, I don't know. It's, it's, I w- it's I, not a good I, one. I have to say, I would still want to check those out, but uh, but yeah, that sounds terrifying. Uh, let's see. What other questions? I'd like to second the suggestion to talk about Rosam's blog post, which we have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry, Peter Montgomery. Think. Although now you'll have heard the last podcast, and you'll, and you'll be satisfied. Yeah, Hopefully. exactly. Uh, do you think the DC's good or bad use of the milestone characters is due to a lack of effort in taking the time to make good stories, for example, or a general cluelessness, as in we own them now? What in how to use, develop, market them? Personally, I think DC lost track of the diversity in the New Fifty Two in a drive to make them on time. It seems like make it sell overrode to make it good slash different. At least in the case of Static Shock, and that trick never works. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of fair. I think it's cluelessness in what to do with them. I, I think yeah. it, it's a uh, we have these characters, huh? Yeah, like a, a greediness. And I think I don't think it's only milestone. I think the same thing happened with the all the pulp characters for the first wave, and for the Archie characters with whatever that's called Red Circle. Yeah, I I think they they went on a, a we'll have these characters. And they had absolutely no idea what to do with them. I think they really lucked out with Thunder Agents in that people seem to like what Nick Spencer did because yeah, a lot. There, it's I, I think it's luck. I don't think there's any great difference in what they did in terms of publishing plan. Right. Yeah, the publishing plan was the same. Like get these guys that have some old dinosaur-like heat to them and put new guys on them and profit. You know. And I just, I don't necessarily, uh, yeah, part of me is like, it's interesting. How do you feel about Garth Ennis doing The Shadow? I guess you probably have, like, negative feelings, since you don't really care much for Ennis, and I'm sure care nothing about The Shadow. I, that, yeah, but that doesn't translate as negative feelings as much as it translates as that's happening. Right. I'm sorry, I, I, a, negative, I have, a negative lack of, yeah. Yeah, I, I, of, I have uh, an absence of anything about right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Are you interested? Uh, you know, it's kind of it's one of those interesting things where I don't think so. I don't think so. I, you know, and then I read an interview. I think I'm bleeding cool with Ennis, where he was talking about where he was interested in going with the characters, and they asked him, kind of like, "Well, you know, do you like the old stuff?" And he's like, "You know, I'm not really a fan. I, you know, I read like Chaikin stuff, and I read some of the stuff that." Um, you know, a few issues here and there, and uh, I looked a little bit at the pulps, and he's like, "No, nah, I just have stuff that I want to do with this character. I have this story that I want to tell." And I was like, I, "On the one hand, that should be like the purest impulse, and then applauded." But for me, also, it, I have an element of, "Yeah, that's never going to work." Like this, and this is the weird thing is I think because I grew up reading reprints of a lot of those old pulps, I'm usually happier when, like, say. Gerard Jones and was it Edward Eduardo Barreto or was it who who was doing the I, Shadow I, I Strikes? Think I think it was yeah. Barreto, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I I was like, these are really good, per- perfectly like nice little pulp 
adventure pastiches and because Jones likes new like the had it really researched the area he felt very comfortable working in modern events and stuff like that so part of me is like it, it, yeah anyway all of which is to say despite being a fan of those those pulp characters I dodged like you could not pay me to put a copy of the first wave books in my hand and sadly that's probably going to be the case from now on I just they're weirdly I'm, I would have better luck with something like the Red Circle characters because I have absolutely no fondness for them. Mm-hmm. And I might be like, okay, pick them up. Let's see what you can do. But I, I don't know. The, the the more time goes on, the more I feel like yeah, everyone, there's more than enough licensed characters in the sandbox. The last thing you need to do is bring more in unless you you have a plan, unless you've got a completely compelling idea of what's great about them and why they work. But if it's but if it's just like, well, hey, you know, I was golfing in Florida and the Archie Comics guys would really love us to do the Crusaders, you know, I'm, it just doesn't it doesn't really strike me as. Yeah, I, I think that getting back to the question slightly, I think that there really was a a, a flaw in DC's look. We're having we have a more diverse cast in that there was nothing more special about a Mr. Terrific or a Static Shock or whatever in terms of anything, in terms of yeah. level of creative team or anything to get them over the already everyone already knows that it's there a bump of hostility or apathy towards non-white male leads and I think that Wonder Woman has it I think that Batwoman mm-hmm. has it in that it's J.H. Williams and, and Azrael right. Anchang for mm-hmm. Wonder Woman and I think, you know, putting Mr. Terrific out there with Eric Wallace, and I can't even remember the name of the artist, and I bought four issues of that series. Right. I, I, I feel like it's almost doomed to failure, because yeah. unless you actually thought, this will inherently find an audience because it is a black lead. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the... Or they were like, we're just going to throw this out here, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't, there's never going to be a better time. And it's... But, but yeah, I feel that way about, like, Batwing, where I was just like... <sighs> You know, it seems like the safest way possible to break, you know, a, to have a character. I don't know. It's just, it is. It's one of those things where all of the, the, the it, it kind of goes back to the sexuality question, you know? It's kind of like having those characters there and trying to figure out a way to handle, to handle the characters first, I suppose. And the idea of their ethnicity second is kind of a big deal, you know? And that's the problem. By the time you get to, you know, Batwing, like, where are you going to go with that, you know? I mean, and even Mr. Terrific. Mr. Terrific sounded like, I think the part that appealed to you was the idea that you were going to get sort of kind of good, winking, pulp adventure fun, you know? Yeah, I I wanted something that was as outrageous as the original solicit. Which yeah. was just overblown in a weird, yeah. old-fashioned way, as in technology, right? Can't, can't exactly. It. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and right. You know, the comic had hints at that. Comic actually had an awful lot of really nice things in it, but it never mm-hmm. amounted to anything. I wish Mister Terrific had had a second creative team. I wish they'd done something to just give it another chance, because there were a lot of really nice touches that I think could have coalesced in something. Ideally, if if it were me, and it quite clearly isn't, um, 
I would have tried, or I would try to bring Mr. Trific into like Frankenstein or something, mm. um, and build up what was already present in the character, right? To then try and relaunch him. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, of course, I really didn't like what they were doing with Frankenstein either, but but I do think that there is what's that? It. But it's surviving. Yeah, surviving. I guess is it. It's not necessarily doing well, though, is it? I sort of maybe I'm wrong. I always I could be wrong. Yeah, I sort of assumed it was hovering near the near OMAC territory. But yeah, actually, I I agree. And it's kind of a shame that we'll never get to see. It does seem like there was enough weird science hero adventure stuff going on between Mr. Terrific and Frankenstein and OMAC that if they had knotted all of that stuff together, it could have been kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. But but it never happened. Yeah. Uh, B.D. Montgomery continues, I really liked your comparison of Uncanny X-Men to Teen Titans and how the Titans didn't really franchise, for a better word, as well. Do you think that was because of the character story or because of the marketing? Um, that's a really good question. By fr- hmm, franchise as well. They, he H- how, means... How, okay, what made X-Men more successful spinning books off? Than oh, yeah. Uh, right. Because, well, because because it is. It's it's brilliantly built right into the concept of it, I think. is is X-Men has the idea of it's a school for mutants. So New Mutants was like kind of the most brilliant, easiest slam dunk of an idea. But, you know, Teen Titans is kind of... It, I think it's a little harder to, you know... Like the best you can get is like, well, they're teens, so you can have more have them do more teens like it's a superhero big brother program i don't think that that's necessarily what they did you know like the teen titans was always one of those weird to me books that was like oh it's all these guys sidekicks you know and the mm-hmm. reason why it ends up to me working as a reinvention is wolfman and wolfman and perez have this idea of like these characters all have relationships established with each other we're going to take them and we're going to throw an equal number of new characters in the mix and so it's I don't know it's almost weirdly enough it's uh, you can't franchise it because it's a family yeah you can't franchise it because it's a family I don't know I mean maybe it'll work now because you have things like the Avengers I suppose you know which sort of branch out but yeah I think that's right I think that's right by the time it was reinvented they were reinvented as a family and the idea of breaking that off yet again seemed to make no sense Uh, what do you think are the odds for Simonson taking over Avengers after Bendis I'd sure like it he says Uh, so would I but it's not going to happen yeah, I don't think so either. I don't think so either. Um, not that I know who that's really going to be, unless it's so, Hickman. Someone suggested... I See, I, I really think it's Fraction, and I really think it's Fraction now. Um, but someone who may be more in the know than me mm-hmm. seems to think it's Mark Wade. Huh. Yeah, which really surprised me. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and and as part of their proof was like he's giving up his boom books. Uh, uh, yeah, I, don't I know. Think that's I a know. Really compelling piece of proof because he was also talking not long before about the unintended consequences of contracts, mm-hmm. like the the fact that having characters in print digitally now means that the contract when it was drafted about getting your rights back 
are now completely bizarre. And he said something that was very elliptically like, you know, believe me, I've been working with some recent companies lately and been frustrated by this sort of thing that's come up. Oh, really? I didn't see that. I could have sworn I saw that. And knowing me, I, you know, misread it and blown it out of proportion. But, uh, but yeah, that's the one. God, where did I see that? Should I should I look for that while you continue to? Um, I don't no, no, I, know. You know, I, I, I just I, I, I think it's going to be fraction in part because Hickman is leaving Ultimates because he said he's been offered his dream job. Fraction is apparently starting his third act, quote unquote, of Iron Man. Mm-hmm. I think Fraction is going to finish Iron Man, and Hickman's going to take over Iron Man, freeing Fraction up to the Avengers. I'm I'm sorry I I missed that because I was looking at a Google result. <laughs> Try that again. That one more time. So. I think Fraction is going to finish up on Iron Man, allowing Hickman to take over Iron Man, hmm. freeing Fraction up for Avengers. Interesting. Huh. So you so Hickman, you think Hickman's dream job is Iron Man, huh? Yeah. Interesting. I I I totally do. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I, I can sort of see that, considering it's all of his, like, yeah, super crazy tech adventures, plus PowerPoint, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, He's a futurist. I have <laughs> 72 graphs a page. I'm, I'm a, such a huge fan of, of the future, let me tell you. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, because I'm like, you know, the idea of Fraction taking over the Avengers is I was like, huh, you know, it's almost like that weirdo slam dunk of like when Englehart was writing the Avengers in a way and also doing Captain America it's like wow if you had the Avengers if you're writing the Avengers and you were also writing Thor and Iron Man at the same time you could probably do some really funky stuff if you wanted to um but I mean as far as I can tell <laughs> the definition of of Fraction's Thor appears to be I don't want to do funky stuff so you know what that's what it sounds he's, like. He's killed off Thor, killed, uh, and r- replaced him with a, a troll. Uh, I, I think, I think Fraction's idea of his Thor is that he is doing the funky stuff. Right, right, and everyone else seems to just disagree. It, do they though? I mean, I, I've not. I mean, Fraction's Thor seems to me like a weird black hole and I don't feel like I've seen reviews of it I don't feel like I ever see anyone talking about it I was about to say I no one's talked about it recently so maybe it's gotten better you actively despised it oh I know uh, I did I mean I mean recently yeah okay so recent so recently who knows but I mean like he had 10 issues where I heard no one say a single good thing and everyone had lots of bad things to say yeah, which was really weird, wasn't it? I think it was the book that everyone was like, this could be great. And then they were like, yeah. oh. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think that was it. They really had the book where they were like, what? So, yeah. I don't I don't know. Anyway, in any event. Um, but, yes, that seems to be Spleen Harris. Maybe he's doing awesome stuff on Thor. He does seem to indeed think he's doing the funky stuff. But, yeah. Um, but he is or not, who knows? Because neither of us are reading it. Exactly. Let's, give him, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Sure, let's just say, yeah. By all means, yeah. I'm sure he is the functastic Thor. Um, 
Let's see. Da, 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 da. He wants more lists. This is still BD Montgomery. He wants more lists. You know, I figure the reason why it takes us 9 million years to do these things isn't just that there's 60 questions, but everyone's Kate's smart enough to ask us six questions per yeah, question. Yeah, no, I know. I know. Okay, so let's speed up because we've been doing it for an hour. Let's go. Right. Um, why do you think 2080 has never really succeeded in North America? Asks Matthew Murray. Distribution. Price. Price and distribution. And Americans don't like anthologies. You know, Americans don't like anthologies, but the marketplace has shrunk to the point where if you had a book that's like Judge Dredd, I think you could move enough copies of it. Like you said, if it was priced affordably enough, but also, as far as I can tell, like people like Hibbs, Hibbs could, could sell the book and comics experience if they just could ship it to him on a regular basis. You know, I'm tried still, signing up for it. And yeah, I'm still kind of over. surprised that that's because I thought they'd fix it. I thought they were like, we're doing a weekly. And all of a sudden it was like, no, only yeah. booking. Yeah, they said they were doing it weekly. And as I recall, they shipped him the entire month of issues all at once at the end of the month, is I think what he said in one of his like little God, that, that is beyond frustrating. Yeah. So he was like, well, so much for that, you know. So, yeah, I think that's the problem. T is back saying, oh, here's another one. Do you think any of the problems with DC's new Teen Titans staying power in comparison to the X-Men had to do with their being portrayed as wimpy? It seems like the only character Wolfman was interested in portraying as a badass was Deathstroke. The actual main character spent more time losing fights, crying over emo shit, and hugging it out with each other, and even bad guys. Their victories were usually lame, like rubble collapsing on a bad guy. At least when the X-Men got punked by a single guy, it would usually be Magno- Magneto or Proteus, not a guy like Brother Blood. Right. Um, again, I think that Teen Titans, they did a pretty good job with the hand that they were dealt and or dealt themselves, which is to say Wolfman himself and Perez were big fans of people crying. They were big fans of over-designed characters. But I would say as somebody who read that book, um, that book actually managed, is where Dick Grayson slash Robin goes from being the joke of DC to actually being a character that you respect. Yeah, I absolutely one hundred percent believe that. I also think that everything that T is listing as is something that sucks was actually a selling point of like way back. Absolutely. Then. And I think that is a, another thing to point out. Like if you look at just the the majority of the books back then, the, what Wolfman and Perez were doing, as as Graham pointed out upon his reread, it was competent. You know, I mean it was it was it they were the books of the day. Uh X Men was pretty exceptional, whether that was you had an exceptional artist on it or by the time you started moving to characters artists that I didn't think were especially exceptional, by that point, those characters had so much heat to them. I mean, you know, Wolverine is a character that is still propping up the Marvel Foundation, you know, I don't want to say single-handedly, but, you know, and for so many years, Uncanny X-Men was the only place where you could get, where you could read him. If you wanted to read him, you read that book, you know? And I think that it, I mean, that's just, that is just a huge, huge, you just can't, um, undervalue something like that I think you know that like the Teen Titans there were many reasons that they were not the X-Men but the fact that they did not have Wolverine is a huge one you know I'm now trying to think who would have been a, the Teen Titans Wolverine like just in terms of like breakout star 
Well, now looking down twenty years down the line, apparently it was Deathstroke, but um, not Cyborg. Yeah, no, not Cyborg. <laughs> no, you know, I mean we'll see. Cyborg now been broken out into Justice League. Like I feel that Cyborg is the character who's going to get the push. We'll see. It's if he's still being pushed in two or three years, we'll see. But I don't see him as, and I could be wrong, but, uh, you know, when I look at people talking on Twitter who talk about characters that are their favorites, actually, I think everyone's tired of Deathstroke, I think, but um, but I don't see anyone being like, ooh, you know. Cyborg. I mean, cyborg, right. Fake you know, stone. Yeah, actually, I would say that uh, at a certain point, Donna Troy also became a kind of a weird That's breakout true, character, yeah, yeah. too, you know, um, very much. Because but who is she, Jeff? <laughs> Dude, I still have to give it up for Wolfman and Perez that they set that up as as a plot point in their very first issue. You know, I, I, I think, like the, I, I, the I, 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 list. Crazily generic as I actually found the run. I think there's an, an awful lot of stuff to be applauded in it. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's one of those runs that should not be blamed for not for comics catching up and then overtaking it if that makes sense agreed agreed yeah 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 exactly by, and I, I, think, not I think really suffers from it mm-hmm. it's but true I, I, I feel it's a shame because I, I think that I think that you do get people thinking well you know they were with me and they, they got their asses handed to them in dismissive terms because the soap opera aspect taken to that level and approached yeah. in that way yeah. has now become it's not just become ubiquitous it's become boring well it's become boring and it's honestly when it's done at that emo level that Wolfman and Perez were doing it it it, it, it it's kind of unseemly uh, but man if you look at the first 200 issues of Fantastic Four you don't you don't see god in fact what was I watching where I was like this these people oh I was watching uh the 1975 horror quote-unquote classic The Car, which is about a possessed car that, like, wreaks havoc on a I, I am, town. I am glad it's about a car. I was worried there when you said... I know, wouldn't it be it's weird? It's like, strangely, it's about a horse that's possessed by a car. That would be awesome. Oh, that'd be even better. <laughs> <laughs> Take that idea on my voodoo acupuncture therapists and put them in some sort of like wacky X-Files and I think you've, you've got gold, Jerry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, anyway, so yes, I, th- I think that those elements didn't age well, but then for many people, neither did Silver Age Superman stories, which is, or Bob Haney's Brave and the Bold, which is why they are awesome. But that's interesting, you, you're comparing them because you think there's going to become a point where they are going to become um ironic slash camp slash whatever classics that people look back on because these days I think that Haney and Silver Superman have had a reappraisal they're mm-hmm. no longer lame they are now awesome again so do you think right. that Teen Titans one day is going to become awesome again? I think so I think so. I mean I think there's enough people for whom it's sort of secretly awesome whether or not it becomes widespread awesome yeah I think that, I think there's a possibility of it it's tough because I feel like um I, I feel that certainly, for example, with Bob Haney's Brave and the Bold, like that was this weird single slab of the marketplace. Like it was this little bubble. It was this little strange outcropping that is just so odd. Whereas like Wolfman and Perez, it might be harder for it to get 
um, you know, that reappraisal because at because one for a while point, it was such a thing. Yeah, it was like quote unquote the best. Whereas Brave and the Bold, whatever else it was, was never like the the <laughs> it was way. Was never the best. It was never <laughs> the best. It just wasn't. God bless it. Um, Tim gives links to uh, Josh Filecoff's piece about comics piracy. David Brother's piece in response to that, uh, and it looks like I beat a post of the beat about comics piracy and says thoughts. Yeah, you know the comics piracy is one that we may want to boot because actually, who was it? Somebody uh, wrote I, us a I, very I an email. Yeah, we got an email about that. Yeah, uh, we, we got a, got a very thoughtful which, which was, email. Yeah, about very it. good. And I th- it was Murray. It was Murray Fox. Yeah, Murray Fox. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, yeah, I think we might have to. Boot yeah, it I think and we come back to it because yeah. it's 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 a big one. It really is. And actually, mm-hmm. Murray's email in particular really ties in with a lot of things I've been thinking. Oh, so, interesting. Hey, listeners, we're completely talking about something you don't know about, but we'll probably talk about it next week, so you'll find it then. Uh, we, Yeah, let's punt Comics Piracy talk until next week. Yeah. Joe says, what real-world landmark would you like to see in a comic book universe? For example, I'd like to see the Marvel Universe Bronx Zoo with animals from Monster Island and the Savage Land. Hmm. Or the Ascent of Man at the Marvel Museum of Natural History, which would be awesome. Because they'd be like, well, the Celestials came down. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Say hello to your brothers, the Eternals and the Deviants. Yes. Which, interestingly enough, as much as I love about Marvel, Marvel's on- only now getting a little more comfortable with that stuff. Um, I think, didn't you have a point where, like, Tom Brevoort or, like, this was a post on your blog at from, like, months and months ago where Brevoort was talking about the idea that most people on the Marvel planet still don't believe in aliens like they believe yeah, they're like which, hoaxes which and frauds and stuff yeah it just stuns me because when you consider everything is happening to say that is like well obviously no one has the technology we have today or they're all morons right because if you consider and this has been happening this week on, on uh, Brevo's Forum Spring the discussion of the sliding Marvel timeline mm-hmm. Fantastic Four According to the official sliding Marvel timeline now, the first issue of Fantastic Four started 13 years ago, which replaced it in 1999. Wow. With Captain America coming out of the iceberg mm-hmm. in late 2000, mm-hmm. according to the sliding timeline, which means that people had camera phones when Galactus came to Earth the first time. Never mind, like, Secret Invasion. (laughs) Right. Where everyone saw aliens. Yeah. Like, aliens actually broadcast to everyone. It's part of the story. So then saying, I don't think people really believe in aliens, because they're not... Not everyone's from New York is such a crazily patronizing attitude, because it's pretty much saying, people outside New York are hicks. <laughs> or like the common sense to believe what they see. Well, spoken like a true New Yorker in that sense, but uh, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I'm kind of I know like they can paint it any way they want, but of course their whole thing is is they still believe that Marvel Universe is closer to the world outside our window to steal the new universe line. Um, than the DC Universe. The DC Universe seems actually more comfortable playing up its weirdness and having people acknowledge its weirdness and consequently 
I think what when we were talking about you know ice cream versus astronaut ice cream was something that I actually enjoyed about the new DCU, um, you know the the pre Flashpoint DCU was it was such a big sloppy mess, mm-hmm. and it, it, acknowledging that was the only sensible approach. And it made yeah, sense. Yeah, and they, they took it further than just acknowledging it because you had mm-hmm. entirely fictitious countries and cities and things like Oolong Island, which was a world power, entirely made up of mad scientists. Right, right. Which is just yeah, yeah, a great yeah. idea, whereas mm-hmm. Marvel would never let themselves get away with that. Right. Yeah. Even if they came up with that idea, they'd have to find some way to make it secret again. Well, again, you know, it's that weird blind eye thing of like, there's so much stuff for Marvel that used to work that doesn't necessarily work. Because again, my, you know, my three words for you are Latveria, Doctor Doom. You know, like, he's a world power. He, you know, it's it's a whole country. He wears a fucking suit of armor, you know. Um, and the things that were great were back in the day when he came to, like, the United Nations and shit. But now, of course, we're in this weird zone of, like... It, it's That's that's too unrealistic. I mean, right. you just look at the early Fantastic Fours where, you know, Submariner buys a movie studio to get the Fantastic Four to star in a movie to embarrass them. Yeah, which, let's face it, that's still a fucking awesome plot. You it's know a, what I mean? It's a spectacular plot, but it's... Yeah. it's yeah. To acknowledge that sort of stuff, I think, breaks the level of credibility that Marvel wants to have in itself. Marvel Marvel believes that it has to have. And there was a great article, I remember, in the Comics Journal that came out 30-plus years ago. I want to say it might have been R. Fior in Funny Book Roulette doing a review of the new universe, I think. And he talked about how Jim Shooter's whole conception of the new universe stemming from the editorials that Shooter was writing for his little you know soapboxes or whatever um, was such a fundam- a a fundamental misunderstanding of the Marvel Universe and B essentially a conception of the Marvel Universe where it's all Stanley no Jack Kirby and I thought that that was a really intriguing way to look at it you know because the idea is like if you've got to have a hook on the Marvel Universe that does not take into account the genius of Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko, you start doing the whole, like, it's just like the real world, except there's superheroes in it. Like, it's not campy. It's serious, you know? And that's kind of where Shooter tried to go with the new universe, where he's, like, you know, talking, like, what's exciting about it is is that those are real buildings being knocked down, you know? And, and of course, you know, that's really the least exciting thing. And what's particularly fascinating for me about that is I've recently been reading the Valiant books, his early Valiant, and it's it's literally, what if I get another chance to do the the new universe? Mm, mm Mm-hmm. But he's like, it's just like the real world. The people act just like real world people. And they age like real world people. And there's just a couple of things that are slightly off. Right. Right. Which which makes, uh, on the one hand, it's a marketing hook. On the other hand, it's very close. Like, it, it is a... It makes a lot of sense that Shooter, who, you know, emerging from where he did, not just with Marvel, but also with from under the tutelage of science fiction dudes at DC would come out with that idea of like, yeah, you know, you just have to have one gimme and then everything else has to be like reality. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. It's on shaky ground, you know, 
again, it, it really has, there's a lot more to be said with the idea of like, or you can get talent, you know, talent, Talent really helps a lot in those situations. Oh, who wants talent? <laughs> well, talent? Talents are no good. Seriously. No, I know. Talents have, well, have, talents have like mm-hmm. ideas of their own. and, and They yeah. want to leave. You don't have them two years from now. They want more money. Yeah. That, that exactly. never works. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to sell uh, outside investors on. So... Uh, we totally haven't answered Joe's question, though. Oh, really? Um, I thought we nailed it. What, what was the question again? What real-world landmark would you like to see in a comic book oh, universe? Oh, right. We did not. You're right. I, we got we didn't so go far off. anywhere yeah. fucking near it. Um, it's such I'd, a good I'd question. like to see zoos. I, w- I would like to see zoos with the alien pets, if that makes sense. You know how like, Superman's Fortress of Solitude has right. the alien zoo? Yeah. If you consider everything that's crash-landed in Metropolis over the years... Right. I'd love to. I'd love to see a museum mm. that's like you know here's you know here is the extraterrestrial wing. Right. Right. You know I okay. I, I'm really glad you said that because I was not going to be and oh I take it back. I still haven't been. I still can't answer his question. And you know why? I know so few real life landmarks. I know so much more about imaginary universes and real places. I can tell there. you all about central cities. Town, right, but San Francisco's yeah. town hall is a problem. Right, exactly. It's a huge mess, and like, what would you put in there? You know. So for me, I'm very easily confused by that sort of stuff. Like, I, um, well, yeah. yeah so I, 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 but I mean, there's also a. I don't necessarily want to see an exact landmark. I want to see something that's close enough to to sort of generic landmarks. For example, when. Um, the X-Men moved to San Francisco and they were like and here are the artists at MoMA right like that didn't like it gave me the momentary thrill of I've been there right but beyond that it, there was nothing yeah no well and that's actually a really great example because actually uh, X-Men is one of those where I occasionally had those moments like oh yeah I gotta try and like when I was trying to you know approach Axel Alonso and get in there I'm like you know, all my years in San Francisco could really pay off I don't think it really ever got more beyond like wouldn't it be great to see some of these guys at La Taqueria you know what I mean like I'm just always like <laughs> I don't know I don't know if that is, ever necessarily works like my whole thing of um my love of New York from Marvel Comics came from the fact that it was a mythical city, you know, that seemed somehow internally consistent. But I was kind yeah, of shocked, the, you but know. Marvel Comics New York is pretty much made up entirely of rooftops. Right. And, well, and, and there's rooftops and maybe some, maybe the Daily Planet building. Yeah. And yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. And, and every street is an alleyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For someone with filled even with like trash cans in. and winos, yeah, like. But even when you go back and you look at the stuff, like I remember, you know, which I mentioned the the whole thing of having uh, that issue where Spider Man ends up going up to uh, the Vespers, I think, and meeting punisher uh in in that park i was like oh my god i've jogged in that park and i've been in right near that little but but back when i was a kid i still loved that stuff just because it was like specific you know what i mean or like when you've got like spider-man punching some dude through like a billboard where some dude's smoking like so in other words for me like there's there's that issue great issue early on of the avengers where they're uh the Avengers, Uncanny X-Men with uh, Cockrum and Claremont where they pop up where like 
the X-Men go like ice skating at yes. Rockefeller Plaza. Yes. That's the best fucking thing in the world. But the bit to me the best thing about it in the world is the fact that they're ice skating, not the, where they're ice skating, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, so, no, exactly. Uh, so I mean the, that's the, always my thing, yeah. The funny story about that of course is as it appears that has Chris Claremont uh, Dave Cockrum and whoever was linking Bob Layton, I think, uh, mm-hmm. and Dave Cockrum's girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, Patty. Yes. As penciled, it was Chris Claremont, Dave Cockrum, and their girlfriends. Yes. And Claremont's girlfriend was replaced by Bob Layton. I love that story. What really? Oh yes. my god, that is so funny. I Bob Layton. I can look at that. Apparently, erased Chris Claremont's girlfriend and drew himself in. That's amazing. I might be misremembering. It might not be Bob Layton. Whoever inked it replaced Claire Vance. Yeah, I'm trying to think. That's one that I should know, but huh. Uh, yeah, I'll be damned. Huh. I'll have to go back and look at that. That That is something that we'll have to tra- talk about next time. But yeah, so so in other words, to, to get around to the easiest question, which we've spent like 90 minutes going on, is I would either like to see more fantasy reali- cre- recreations of things that are fantastic I suppose like I would love to see the section in New York where it's the tourist thing where f- people go to take photos of where Galactus landed you know yeah. where his no, feet no, exactly. were yeah. and there's like some dude that's there that's like selling like weird cartoon sketches or there's like some like you know like some dude who's selling Galactus hats out of like a, a street cart you know what I mean? Like, that's the kind of thing that I think is awesome. Again, because I don't know real-world history. Like, as, the part that would be cool if you have the Uncanny X-Men go and watch Showgirls at the Castro Theater is more the idea that they're watching Showgirls at a movie theater than than it's the Castro. Even though yeah. part of me would love that, part of me is like, it's still somehow too non-inclusive. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. <laughs> you know, um... so. Scythe asks, Greg Land has a career. Is this because is this despite the corn poses he contorts his characters or because of them? I'm gonna say it's because. Yeah, I'm going to say because and also we should throw in the, the Dotson addendum, which I think is that really uncomfortable part of um where we were analyzing the Dotsons. I think that Greg Land, uh, as you pointed out, actually has slightly better storytelling. He, like, he's got some... He's got enough panel-to-panel flow that that even when you're being distracted by the Uncanny Valley faces, I feel like it at least... The story moves along. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, And I could be entirely mistaken about that. So that being said, yes, absolutely 100% the foreign faces. That being said, he also has a, at least enough facility to get you through a book, which is something that I find is not the case with the Dodsons. The other reason I say uh, because is also because I think his ability to pull up whatever he is tracing from makes him fast enough to hit deadlines. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what it's about. He sells comics in his own time, so... Yeah. You know, he's got a career. Um, of all the second-tier comic companies existing in the shadow on DC and Marvel, which would you most like to see break out and compete with the big two? Uh, Jeff? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's tough for me because, like, it's funny. The Image Expos this weekend, and I am not going. Uh, not at all? Nah, I could go on Sunday, but that's usually the day Edie and I are, like, supposed to do stuff, and we actually have friends we're supposed to meet, and so it becomes this really, like, right, exactly. Sunday's my, I have a life day, and Friday and Saturday I work, and I can't, can't take the time off. 
I mean, there's additional factors there for me, kind of like I don't, why I wouldn't necessarily really want to go to a con, but that being said, Image Comics, I would like them to succeed in terms of the stuff that they are doing and trying to put out there in a lot of cases, um, which I, you know, it's not all of which works for me, but I feel like they're really trying to, to stake their claim as a genuine alternative for established creators to create and own properties that they can really care about. Mm-hmm. We'll see if it gets shot down all over again or not, but, um, you know. I, I feel I, weirdly ambivalent about the question because I can think of companies I want to see succeed, but not compete with the big two because I think competing with the big two brings with it its own problems. Like, I'd, I, love, to, I'd love to see Oni grow. I'd love to see Oni having more success, having more money, mm-hmm. expanding their output. I think saying that I'd want to see them compete with the big two, it feels like I'm cursing them. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, it, it is... I, I, I'm sure I would like to think that he, what he means is kind of like... I, I think he just means compete with in the sense of like market share, where all of a sudden, like, who would you give 20% of 30% of the market to right now? just to see what they could do with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, you're actually more plugged into this than I am in a sense, because, you know, you're getting, you follow yeah, stuff I, by IDW I, or I, Dynamite. I, or... Yeah, I'd like to see, see, here's the thing, I think IDW and Dynamite are, in terms of their, the volume of their output, not a million miles away from, uh, and Image as well, not a million right. miles away from Marvel and DC levels already. Yeah. Um, and almost because of that, I don't want to put them forward for this, mm-hmm. because I can. I've seen what they can do at that level, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I find myself thinking, you know, I going for once go for something smaller. Fantagraphics. There you go. I'd like Fantagraphics right. to compete with Marvel and DC and market share because they sure. are a fucking insane company. Sometimes they, they put are. out the weirdest, craziest, out, most out there shit. And I would love to see that paid off because mm-hmm. I think if all of a sudden that got, you know, 30%, 40% market share, mm-hmm. then Marvel and DC might relax. Like, right. they might not be, you know, everything has to be Batman or Justice mm-hmm. League or X Men or Avengers or Avengers versus X Men or anything like that. They might be open to new ideas again. Well, but again, there's this idea. Well, I, I personally feel that at least in the case of Marvel, Marvel is so under the gun they cannot be under. They can't be open to new ideas. I mean, those guys have, if nothing else, there is no way. Like you either have to look at Walking Dead as an irrepro- ir- irreproducible fluke, or a sign that there is a huge market out there for a non-superhero book. The, the fact that that can move so many copies in, in, you know, and not so much in the, in the single issues, which is, I think where everyone's like, uh, but if you look at how many issues that thing has sold of its trades and mm-hmm. continues to sell. And of course the spinoff success of which like you're looking at, that is something that came from a black and white, you know, quote unquote indie book. I, I think they're well aware of it. I just don't think they have the option for it. Um, for me, I'm like, well, because I'm so, I would like to see, it'd be great if Viz suddenly took like 30% of the market because I would like to see more manga make it through the, the gates here, 
Um, you know, there's still a lot of great, weird, uninteresting stuff that I would love to see catch on. Um, as it is, it feels very constrained. And I'm not even really sure Viz is a great choice because Viz for a long time was so conservative. I can't say that, you know, if they suddenly got 30 or 40% of the market, they would just take whatever it was that they had got them there and keep doing that, you know? Mm-hmm. That, well, that, that's, that's the concern. I mean, I love, love, love books from IDW and Dynamite, mm-hmm. but I don't love all of their output. And there's the fear of, you know, if they suddenly become these massive companies, are they going to increase the things that I like? Or are they going to the, increase the other things? Because right. I probably love as many DC books as I do mm-hmm. IDW books in proportion. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, no. I absolutely agree. Like, I know that you're enjoying, like, G.I. Joe books, for example. But yeah, yeah. let's say IDW, if IDW suddenly made it huge because of G.I. Joe books, they would crank out 14 of them. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I don't even like all four of the G.I. Joe books that are out. Right, exactly. Or, or Dungeons & Dragons. I think the John Rogers Dungeons & Dragons is the best team book out there. But yes. every other Dungeons & Dragons book has left me amazingly cold. Yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. again, it comes down to I I like books because I like the creators, and I not because I like the properties. And I think that's always the problem with something that's really big. So it, it does feel like a curse to be like, I want these guys to have a lot of market share, because unless they can have a lot of market share and then not overextend themselves in order right. to have greater market share or keep it up, you know, which I, I, I think is the nature of the beast. I think people yes that. agreed. I'd like I'd like Stephen Wacker to have bigger market share. I think. In that sense, because I feel like Wacker does a pretty good job of fitting together creators to properties in a way that makes me care about both more. You know what I mean? I thought you were meaning as a publisher for a second. I was like, Stephen Wacker's going solo? Yeah, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is is that every once in a while you'll come across an editor who's really good at packaging yeah, things I, so yeah, you I, care about both more. Here's but... the thing. I, I wouldn't for the, the reason that I'd worry that he'd get even more overextended. I right. would rather Marvel had multiple editors like Steve Wacker than Steve Wacker had more books, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you can figure out what Steve Wacker does, how he makes that work, and 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 clone that in a way, yeah. I think what Steve Wacker does is he cares. I think sometimes he cares far too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, could be. I think I think Wacker has really good taste too, and I think that's yeah. another thing that's exceptionally uh, um, in demand. You know. So, anyway, uh, next question. Uh, okay, Ben Lipman asks lots, but they're relatively short. So let's Okay, good. Who did the best Superman ever? <sighs> Shit. Like drawing wise, story wise? I I, uh, I don't know. When it seemed like the smartest thing we would say, I, I have stages that I adore. I love Siegel and Schuster's original grasshopper guy who like punches out evil labor bosses. Um, when you get to, I'm I'm not as interested once Superman comes out and is fighting pranksters and stuff like that. I love the Weisinger era Superman where you're getting Kurt Swan drawing the stuff because he's under drawing things that are so absurdly, uh, insanely weird. Although I'm trying to think who my favorite favorite writers were during that period. Plus with um, Siegel. I mean, Siegel was really good during yeah, that period. Yeah, Siegel did some amazingly great stuff during that period, too. So, you know, I'd still sort of keep that. Then, 
you know, once you kind of get past that stage, I'm kind of like, well, everybody loves, you know, Morrison and Quitely. <laughs> um, but for a more modern Superman, I, for me, it gets a little harder to actually... Oh, did I tell you? I didn't tell you. Can I... Can, well, this is a digression, but I'll try to Di- keep it Digress. I have figured out why Brits, A, love Superman, B, seem to get Superman, and C, can usually write a better Superman these days than a lot of American writers. Well, I think this is entirely, it might be a digression, but it's a really mild one, and one you have to explain now that you said that. Okay, I can, and two words, Doctor Who. You think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we, we've been watching, I'm finally watching Doctor Who. We've watched like about six episodes of uh, so season five. So I'm and you like it. You know, this will be a good talk to have another time. But there there are things that I I am in. Let's, I will, I will literally say I am in awe of Doctor Who. Like separate and apart from liking it, hating it. Because there are things that are... Um, there are things that probably drive you up the wall. and there's Exactly. Like... And there are things that are genuine. That, yeah, there are things that I like, but I'm also, in, I'm also in awe of the way that it has become this perfect thing. It's almost like you took, like, I don't know, like a piece of metal sledge, you know, that had fallen off of something else and managed to turn it into the world's most perfect tuning fork with almost very little effort um anyway so yes doctor who is an alien who's the last of his race who cares about everyone and is going to save everything and so he's superman do you want me to slightly poke a hole in that theory for you sure doctor who only became the last of his race in the reboot okay but before that i i still say alien who loves everybody and wants to make sure that everything that, works. And admittedly, that, that, that doesn't... That's a that fascinating, works. fascinating idea. I, I, I never would have thought that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Doctor Who is the is like the super chaotic good version of Superman. Like, Superman is lawful good, I guess. I don't know, the D&D terms probably don't mean much to you. But Doctor Who is this force of chaos. And, and he's it, uh, it, Superman is everybody's dad, and Doctor Who is everyone's uncle. You know? Oh, but, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure it's ever going to get better than that. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> let's move on. Although, Ben Levin, um, my answer is Kurt Swam or Frank Whiteley, if we're talking artists. Uh, a few months ago, there was an omnibus of John Byrne's Fantastic Four. What do you guys think of his run? I liked it a lot more when I remembered it than when I read the omnibus. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I remember it. parts of it very fondly. It is also the part where John Byrne starts to become everything that I don't like about John Byrne. It's it's a really... Uh, it starts off much better than it ends, if that makes sense. You can oh, actually yeah. see Byrne becoming more conservative as he works on it, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. is actually kind of crazy to see, especially in an omnibus where it's like, you know, 30 issues at a time. But he yeah. does. He becomes more conservative as he works on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, he starts off with such a clear formula. Yes. That's kind of really telling to see as well because I feel that you really see him learn to be the writer that he becomes on that book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really it's it's good. It's really interesting. I, I, it's yeah. one of the the core superhero texts. Uh, definitely one of the mar- core Marvel superhero texts. Yeah, 
uh, of all time, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, and definitely one of the, by all means, one of the, you know, in the top five fa- Fantastic Four runs, by all means. That being said, yeah, by the time it is done, John Byrne has become, and it only gets, I think, codified in Superman. He, it's like he works the Kirby out of his system almost to his detriment. Or, or, how to put this he works the he works past and through the kirby and starts messing with other influences which i just don't i don't find as interesting as much yeah i think he i think he works the kirby to death is the problem mm-hmm. i don't think he even well to the point where he gets sick of it sick, yeah, sick yeah. of it i think like he brings it back in superman with the some of the dark side stuff but he doesn't really want to and i it feels no, no, the me, thing is the thing is what i think happened and mm-hmm. here goes me psychoanalyzing comic creators again. I think at some point he managed to convince himself that he was the heir to Kirby. Mm. And so he didn't want to repeat Kirby's thing, but he was like, I know what happens with these characters next. Right. And right. I think that that's what the problem is, especially with his DC work, especially with his fourth world work. Every time he mm. went near Darkseid, I think it right. was very much not even not checking what had happened with the characters earlier but pretty much like ignoring like he was he was, he was basically on his I'd, his memory of what Kirby did oh interesting that could and, be and his I... take on what that memory of Kirby's characters would do next as opposed to what Kirby had actually done mm-hmm. if that does that make sense? It does it does I'm not sure that I necessarily agree with it because I feel like there's this weird like and, and I could—I don't even know why this name is the name that strikes me. But I honestly feel like what happened was Byrne decided to work in, tried to make us make a bring in the stuff of the Silver Age DC that he liked into his work as much as he brought in the Kirby. And I think that that was a huge mistake. Like I think he was like, at some point he was like, I'm not as interested in the Stan Lee side of Lee and Kirby, but I, but what would happen if John Broom had worked with Kirby? And I think the answer is eternal boredom, unfortunately. So that's <laughs> that's really me. What character yeah. didn't Kirby work on, which you wished he'd worked on? Man, that's a good one. Um, Green, Lantern, Green Lantern, Green Lantern, Green Lantern. Oh right, that, what a good choice! Uh, yeah, that wouldn't have been my choice though. Um, hmm, it's interesting, you know, because I think of Kirby as like so frequently working on, for the most part, he worked on cur- characters that he created. So it's a little hard to kind of think outside that box of like, oh right, which other books? Because I'm like, as far as I can tell, he just didn't have much taste for it. You know, I kind of liked what he was doing with his Superman stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. I you know, Green Lantern would be a great pick because you would get all the big external space stuff. You get all the big power and bloopy stuff. Uh, I would say uh, Doctor Strange, maybe. You know, he never really handled Doctor Strange. Yeah, that, that, could, that could have been awesome. You know, he has a tremendous. I think, from what I can tell, he has a tremendous fondness for uh, Bill Everett's Submariner. You know, mm-hmm. um, it is a character that that Kirby drew as villain repeatedly and also, you know, and tussling with characters. He never really drew the character as a, as a, you know, when he got his own series or something like that. And it would be kind of interesting to see if, um, if Kirby had a place where he wanted to go with Submariner, I think that would be really interesting. 
Steve Englehart wants to get back into superhero comics. Which character and with which artist do you want to see him do? Man, I was hoping you would answer this one first. Uh, uh, I want to see him do Hawkeye. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Because you know my love of West Coast Avengers, but I think that he... I don't know. I, I really liked his Hawkeye. Or The Thing, or Ben Grimm. Hmm. I really loved his Ben Grimm whenever he did, went close to Ben Grimm. Um, and with which artist? Hmm. I want to see him do the thing with Pascal Ferry. Oh, wow! What a nice choice. Uh, huh? Yeah. I I don't know. I think I'd want to see him if he had interest in it. I would want to see him do Superman. Uh, with somebody that would really take the weird whatever weirdness he was putting there and amplify it um Paul Pope is always my like I'm gonna I'm gonna put Paul Pope in there just cause I love Paul oh god Pope on Engelhart and Paul, Paul Pope could be amazing yeah that would actually be kind of interesting wouldn't it and let's face it a, a Vision and Scarlet Witch series by Engelhart and Paul Pope would be the most awesome thing yes okay As, yeah you win you, you yeah, totally win That that would be great Eric Shanner's Age of Bronze, what do you reckon? I reckon I've never read it. <laughs> you know, I reckon I liked it, but the release schedule slowed down, and then I stopped reading it, and I keep meaning to pick it up, but it's still not complete yet, so I still haven't picked it up. See, yeah, I, I, th- I think when it's done and there's a massive omnibus, I'll pick it up. Yeah. Although, pick as I said, Eric Shanner is a very... Um, is an artist I have a lot of problems with. Oh, not, because, not because his work is bad... But because mm-hmm. his work uh, is entirely static to me, mm-hmm. I just don't get fluidity in his work, and I that really is a problem for me for some reason. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so I'd, I'd be really, I am actually really curious what I would make of Age of Bronze because I I think it's a book that would require something other than static. Right. We'll see. Um, what's the deal with Rick Jones? Marvel have tried absolutely everything with that guy. There seems to be no reader demand yet. He always pops up. What's that about? Rick Jones is awesome. And yes. Jeff, Jeff Parker's taken Rick Jones. I fucking love. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah Jeff no, Parker's I... taken Rick Jones. Is, he's A-bomb as per um, Jeff Loeb. Mm-hmm. So he's now the new abomination. Um, and he's essentially just this idiot this good-natured idiot who, who blunders into things. And yet it always turns out all right. Not really through any, like, any action that he takes. It just right. somehow ends up around. And I love that. I, I can't tell you how much I love, even more than anything else in Jeff Parker's Hulk, with the possible exception of his Machine Man. I, I would not be upset if they were like, you know... Thunderbolt Ross is dead. Now Rick Jones is the star. I yes, that I <laughs> love that. I, I genuinely, um, if, if you're not reading, if you've not read it, I have down the the trades because mm-hmm. at least the first, I want to say the first two trades, um, have Rick Jones backups. Oh wow, that are just just great. I would <laughs> love to check that out. Yeah. Funny stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I mm-hmm. love Rick Jones. Also. I've told you before, my one idea for um, Epic Comics, if you remember Epic way back when, yes, uh, was a Rick, was Ultimate Rick Jones. Oh, right. Right. This dude was like a crazy beatnik, and he was teaming up with Doc Samson, who was a wrestler turned radio talk show host. What a great idea. 
Graham, that's so good. I say go uh, with that. Yeah, but yeah, it, it, it went nothing beyond that apart from there was going to be in the third issue they'd have to get a job washing dishes <laughs> just so it would be called Beats Working and they'd both be wearing... Uh, <laughs> That that was Braids like or something. That that was as far as my thinking ever went on it. That's far enough, man. Let me tell you, that's already outside the bounds of human imagination. That is brilliant. I I would I, love I, to read I, that. I love Rick Jones. Love Rick Jones to death. The same reason yeah. I love Snapper Carr. See, Snapper Carr. No one's done anything with him for like so long. He's like the forgotten Rick Jones. No, Snapper Carr made a comeback post fifty two in. Um, God, what was it? Something Keith Giffen wrote. Um, the Four Horsemen series. Mini series he did. Snapper Car came back as a kick-ass, not joking, you know, take no prisoners uh, agent of Checkmate. Huh. And before that, he was in the Hourman series by Tom Payer, which is the reason I love Snapper Car so much. Ah, uh, I should because really track down his Hourman. That, that, the, his, uh, Tom Payer's Snapper Car in Hourman. Uh, is possibly my favorite supporting character in comics. Mm, mm. Just because, just because of how entirely fucked up he is, and how well-meaning he is despite that, and how he mm-hmm. just has no awareness of how much mess he is. Huh? That does sound interesting. Yeah, I, I, I love I, the Snapper and and Rick Jones. Love hmm. them. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of Rick Jones. Snapper Car, I always feel like was a big bag of missed potential, but apparently I was just missing that bag, uh, in which his potential was fulfilled. So shows you what I know. Abby asks, why was Gambit more popular than Longshot? They're both slutty men who throw things at people. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um Slutty men who throw things at people. Come to think of it, I'm sort of like, when you put it like that, like, we have an entire generation of people, guys who turned into to Longshot and Gambit. Uh, Gambit is um, is more popular because Longshot was a naive. Gambit was the uh, was the sultry lover, you know? He's like the Harle- he's like a Harlequin romance dude, whereas, like, Longshot also, Gambit was, was mysterious. Yeah. Well, like I said, he's he's the mysterious lover. You know what I mean? Like he was. I just want you know, to see lover again. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Those jokes you're always threatening to make. You should have one of you just going lover. Oh, I should do that. I was yeah. I I came if if our last podcast hadn't been almost three hours long. I tell you, I would have had a ringtones of us both. But uh, um, also, also, why is Gambit more popular than Longshot? He appeared at the right time and he stuck around as opposed to Longshot who had a great miniseries was pulled into X-Men where he didn't really have a purpose right? and then written out and pretty much disappeared yeah he kept coming in coming back, coming in, going back where, but, yeah, but no. Gambit came in like when Jim Lee mm-hmm. popped up right? and then was in it during the X-Men's like big period mm-hmm so, and let's face it, the fact that he's romancing Rogue is way more interesting than than Longshot being romanced by Dazzler, you know? Again, it's just everything's right. I don't know how to describe Everything is right about Gambit in a way that makes people still hate him to this day, whereas Longshot, nobody still cares about him to this day. So. I have to say, I would love if Anna Shanti went back to Longshot. Hmm. 
Be interesting. Because I, th- I think her original series was so, so purely her. Yet yeah. She works right. in the Marvel Universe in a way that mm-hmm. I don't think anything else she did, including her Daredevil, um, mm. ever was. And I, it always makes me kind of sad that whatever the graphic, the announced graphic novel follow-up was never appeared. <laughs> I was like, what is yeah. in that story? God damn it. Damn it, I you know, to the know. There was no story. <laughs> they were like, we're doing a graphic novel. <laughs> Nothing. Um, why did Moon Knight fail? And if so, why? And if so, were you surprised it failed? Yeah, those are all really good questions. Um... Yes, it failed. It fails because it's Moon Knight. And was I surprised no. it failed? No, it was Moon Knight. No, I disagree with you. I disagree with you. I think I think that Moon Knight could have been a hit. Um, I think it failed because of Bendis and Malieve. Honestly, I think I, I think I, it because they're not enough of a draw. Because I think I think you could point to the numbers now and show that neither of them are actually as much of a draw. So look at Spider yeah. Woman. Yeah, exactly. That, I think that's kind of my thing. Look at Spider Woman. Look at Scarlet. Look at Halo Uprising. Look at um, look at look at uh, Moon Knight. I don't. Th- I don't. I think. I think though that that when Bendis and Malieve were were a team that you liked, um, the people like me who really remember that Daredevil run so fondly have feel there is nothing of that Brian Bendis left that I have. I would have had no interest. Um, but I do think that Moon Knight has a draw. His his problem was his draw got all used up back uh, when he debuted, drawn by David Finch and written by Charlie Houston. That, that and had a, huge numbers. That is another huge problem. Numbers. I mean, there's been what at least three relaunches of Moon Knight in the last five years. Yeah, and that's the thing. Whereas, like, if you wait ten years, the character will power up and people will want to read it. I think if if Houston and Finch had been able to to draw, have that book on time and do what it said that it was going to do for the first, you know, five or six issues, it would have, it would have been a, it would have been a sustained hit, but you know, the kind of the well got poisoned again. And yeah, Bendis and Malieve, I don't think, I don't think those guys have any heat as a team together in a way for people. And I don't necessarily think that they have any heat. I'm not sure if they have heat separately anymore. Like, I guess if Malieve somehow ended up over at DC and ended up, like, on, I don't know, Human Target or something like that, I I might check it out, I guess. Oh, but we both know if Malieve ever ends up over at DC, he's going to be given a Batman book. Yeah, which, for me, I'm always like, but how would that work? You know what I mean? That's why I went with Human Target. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they'll give him a Batman book, and I don't necessarily think those results are going to be worth it. And it'll be like, a Batman book he theoretically writes, but, like, by issue mm-hmm. two, someone else will be writing it. Tony Bedard right. will be writing it. <laughs> we really like you've got a worst comics worst case scenario wheel that you can just spin in your head and wheel. Where is Stephen Grant lately? Probably Las Vegas, right? Las Vegas, right? Yeah, I think. I don't know. Vegas is a tough place. Maybe he's not. Maybe it spat him out like it did so many others. Um. It's a good question, though. Like, I do remember when everybody was reading Grant and talking about Grant, and then, I don't know, people stopped. Apparently, well, after well, I did he I stopped paying though. attention. Did he stop first? Is that yeah, why? Yeah, I think he stopped okay. first. I think if he was still at CBR, people would still be like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think he would be Augie size as opposed to Stephen Grant size, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. He was always pretty much the, the middle ground between 
Alice and Ogie. Right. On CPR. Yeah. Um, and I think his appeal had shrunk or shrunk. Mm-hmm. But um, I think he'd still have a draw if he was still there. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. Abby's got the, the nackingly good questions, I guess. Eating meat off an animal bone. What's the appeal? There's a chef with a knife. He can cut the meat off the bone. I'll pay him to do that. What am I missing? God knows. I don't get either, Abby. <laughs> really? Oh, my I God. I really, really don't get it. Mm. What is it? Because uh, uh, you're making noises like you know. <laughs> I think I do. I mean, I could be wrong. I was never necessarily that great about eating meat off the bone, but there's a few things. One, at least I know my dad, who was a big fan of eating meat off the bone, was a big fan of cracking into the bone and sucking crap out of the marrow. I've never really necessarily been into that. I know some people who are. For me, if you've got a really good piece of meat there's something a satisfying in the way that it comes off the bone and also when it's cooked and it's still on the bone you get enough variation in texture as you go down so that it has a layered experience you know like you get that you get the the, that's a great answer thank you that that's the type of answer that only somebody who hasn't been eating red meat for like 30 years i I was gonna say like because you're a vegetarian i was expecting a joke and then you gave a spectacular (laughs) answer uh our comic's still an outlet for weirdos losers and oddballs arguably they used to be for example if you watch that comics britannia documentary it contextualizes the various british cartoonists as being reflections of punk acid house etc i grew up in claremont you're not alone and got to find out as an adult oh he was not exactly right about teen angst that whole time let alone when you go outside the mainstream to sim chester brown etc 70s marvel maybe makes more sense when you know it's about drugs than when you don't do you look at comics now as home to non-mainstream voices or have they been taken over by dull careerists, milk-toast adorable webcomic moppets, and people who think playing video games constitutes being part of a subculture? Or am I merely glorifying the past or picking out isolated examples? Also, doesn't matter. I love Abe. Oh my god. That, you know, I remember reading that comment and it, and it it was so it's so good. I've actually forgotten parts of it and rehearing you say it, I'm like, "Oh Jesus." Um <clears throat> yeah, we should just say something like no and move on, you know. Uh I, I you know, uh... <laughs> Here's the thing. I don't think it does matter. Ultimately. Uh because I think that like any culture, there will always be an oddball contingent. Mm-hmm. And just because the mainstream has become more mainstream, and I think it has, mm-hmm. I think the mainstream has become much more, much less, sorry, forgiving of the oddballs, of the people with the individual voices. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where you have like the big names, but even a big name like Morrison is writing in a really generic style. Right. Um, right. But I think that that's okay. Because ultimately, that's just one generation that will be overturned. Right. And so if that leads to more individual voices, more more of a weirdo oddball sides becoming dominant later, that's that's the circle of life, Jeff. Um, and I, I, th- I, think, I think what it is, is the people who would want it to be the outlet for the weirdos, losers, and the oddballs. Who romanticize that? Uh, who romanticize that subculture? Mm-hmm. Are just here at the wrong time. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. So ultimately, I I think it doesn't matter because it's it'll change. Mm-hmm. We're we're in a really corporate part of culture in general right now. 
Right. I'd argue that there isn't really an oddball culture that has not been commodified right now. Well, sort of. I mean, let's put it this way. Yeah, commod- commodification seems to be a larger goal than self-expression for the majority of the media spread across the everything you know definitely when you look at stuff the the thing that was interesting about the about comics in the 70s is at least in the US there there really wasn't much you know i guess is how to say it so in other words um you know, someone like Steve Gerber ends up doing Marvel Comics. Like, you got a lot of weirdo guys that ended up going into Marvel Comics. A lot of those guys have been disparaged as the precise section where where comics began to fall. When comics started hiring fanboys instead of writers to do their own work. But I don't, I don't necessarily honestly believe that. I mean, I think the problem is that what people, what excited guys about Marvel Comics in the 60s that made them want to write there or or get into comics was the idea of like, hey, I can write my stuff that is going to be weird and unique and me. Because you saw stuff in Marvel Comics that seemed very weird and very unique, but, you know, tied to guys like Stanley and Jack Kirby or whatever. But, you know, so you got guys who were like, they were excited by the idea of self-expression, not necessarily by the idea of working on I mean self-expression through working on Spider-Man if you see yeah. what I'm saying yeah and I feel like over generations working on Spider-Man yeah exactly like I think there's a lot of people who feel like it seems absurd to think that you're going to have self-expression working on Spider-Man unless you just sort of talk about the idea you know of the you know the more the thing you see bandied out around more often, which is that, oh, you know, in order to be a professional writer, you always put some part of yourself into the character and blah, 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 blah. Completely different from what I think these guys were thinking and feeling. On the other hand, you had, like, an underground comic scene that had flared up and was burning out in the 70s. Now you've got, you've got fucking webcomics. Like, I really honestly believe that the webcomic scene is where the losers and the misfits and the weirdos hang out now. And here, here's the fascinating part of Abby's comment, because he dismisses that as milk twist adorable webcomic Muppets. And it's kind of like, yeah, they are the lo- losers and the weirdos and the oddballs now. It's just that you don't like their flavor of loser, weirdo, and oddball. Right, exactly. Well, and, and there's also a, a thing of... Um, hmm, uh, I would say that we... we ha- that... that, that Back, back in the day, before the internet, you had a monoculture with lots of little bubbles in it, you know? And now I think the internet makes you feel like you've got a megaculture, but with a striation of monoculture running through it. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So again, there's that idea of like, you know, the whole idea that video games seems like a, a subculture. I was kind of like, ooh, ouch. But you know what? You could say that about anything now. Like, I mean, there is a way in which, um, you know, I don't know, you know, Sherlock fanfic is ultimately just a playful quasi-transgression of, of, of corporate-owned characters that really is just, in its way, a love letter to corporate-owned characters, you know? So yeah. I don't... 
I, I don't know. I think I think that this cult. I would say yeah that that there is things are more strange in a more mundane way now than they used to be back when I was a quote unquote kid when things were very mundane and the things that bubbled underneath that were very strange and and seemed stranger because they were um uh sort of uh sep- seemed so fully separated from the culture around them but to, and i'm going to say this really quickly and then we should move on because god damn it i really want to finish these questions and yes. we're close to our cutoff point but part of what i think this you know the strangeness is more mundane is is an inversion of punk in that we are the generation who just doesn't like the younger generation's rebellion does that make sense um hmm yes well you would say that you would say that's inherent right isn't that the case yeah no no, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm saying yeah exactly that Um, it seems it seems to me pointless to say you're not being yourselves in a way that we want you to be yourselves that right. seems to be a massive, massive missing the point. Mm-hmm. Saying, well, why, are, why are you not weird and oddball in the way that I want you to be weird and oddball? Why are you? Mm-hmm. Why is your rebellion so dull? Why are you being so mundane? Why, you know, it's like that's it's it's ultimately none of our business, right? And I think if we recognize it, if we felt the empathy for it, then they'd be doing it wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Well, I yes, it does make sense. Although I kind of think half think that any parodying of the culture anyway will just drive us nuts. Like it's inherent. Like they, it would be impossible for them, even if they were mimicking us, it would still drive us nuts. In the same way, when your little brother does exactly what you're doing, and it just annoys the shit out of you, even though all they're doing is emulating you, you know. So, I think. We could talk about this for a good long time. It's a shame because I think it's a really powerful subject. What I find fascinating is I would like to poke at it a little bit because I think that one of the things that Abe has the – and this is just going uh, off of, you know, essentially stalking him on the internet – is I think that Abe has a a very strong disassociation uh, of expression from commodification, you know? Like, as far as I can tell, he's been working on a very long webcomic project and, as far as I can tell, has no interest in, and maybe this is second-guessing him, in releasing it in a way that would ever make him any sort of profit or money out of it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that he, and so I think that there is such an inherent streak of commodification in everything, in every aspect of the culture that's being done except for a very few that I think he inherently rejects it and probably overlooks its 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 outsiderness I guess you know because I think for him no, no, I, I, not... I, I, I totally understand what you're saying but then I come okay. back to I think you're being willfully ignorant and selfish by saying why are you guys not rebelling in the way I want you to rebel sure Sure. Or that's not true, because that's not what he's saying. He's saying we're the rebels. When, when what it really is is he, what he means is we're the, the rebels who are rebelling in this way. Right. Well, but it does make sense. I do think there there is a a very good case to be made, assuming that he is and 
I'm reading this into what he's saying, so it may not be that if he's saying, you know, uh, you know, you can you can't have rebellion with it within a uh, an attempt to essentially commodify yourself at the same time. You know, you just can't. So, and I and that's probably uh, that would be I think an argument that would be fun to have or a discussion uh, fun to have at another point anyway. Whether or not it's what Abby means, because he probably would tell me he doesn't. So let's move on. Hey. Okay then. Thank you to Troy Wilson, Terence, and Gary for all giving, leaving comments that aren't questions, allowing me to yes. skip them. No offense, guys, but thank you. Um, You're awesome. Dackel, D A C L, says, Allow me to be a bit of a fanboy here, but how is Avengers versus X Men even a competition? Isn't X Men full of ridiculous psychics who can mentally disable people? Emma, Xavier, can't hope to do something like that too. Quentin Quire in a pinch. And they have Magneto, so you can count Iron Man out and Cap Shields out. Not sure how Thor's hammer works with Magneto's powers. And even if Wolverine is on the Avengers side, Magneto has him locked down. Surely, who have the Avengers got that the X Men need to watch out for? Hulk, Doctor Strange? Oh, um. Jeff? Oh God! Why did you punt that to me? Okay, first off, because, because I have to say, ultimately, I'm like, I sim- I both agree with you and think it's uh, who's stronger, Thor versus the Hulk. Uh, it depends on who's writing. Question. Exactly. Answer whoever the writer wants it to be. So yeah, yeah. we definitely have like, I, I, you know, God, remember the the Marvel DC super crossover event? Yes, we, where, where, you know? there, where people voted and the results were hilarious. Yeah, great. So it was like, wait a minute, how the hell is Aquaman defeating Thor or whatever it ended up being? And you know, Storm and Thor. Around it. Was it Storm and Thor? Who was it where Aquaman beats the other guy by having a whale jump up and land on him? Was it Aquaman versus Submariner? Yes. Was that? Yeah. Okay. So anyway. Right. Exactly. So I, you know, I, I, I really hate the fact that my answer is kind of like I don't, I don't really care because back in the day, if this had been happening back when you know 1980 or something like that, and I'd be losing my mind. I'd be like, oh my god, but no, because you know Cap's shield. But I don't know, you know, moon, you know, they'll come up with something. Depending on who's writing it, it will either be something that will be very clever. Or it's very stupid. To, what, to what make I you what I loved is seeing the interviews with um, Axel Alonso and Brian Bendis was they're like, and people will switch sides, which right. just slowly makes me think, well, it's not Avengers versus X Men. Well, no, I, but I kind of uh, that was actually like, weirdly I, like, enough the part where I was like, oh, you know, that would be kind of fun. To me, that like, would be I great like, if I like, like if that's to happen for the series to be twelve issues. Yes, there, exactly. There's literally, just twelve issues of Avengers versus X Men, and that is it. It's going yes. to get dull, even though, as yeah. Chad Nevis people pointing out on Twitter, I really do just want it to be Avengers Defenders War. That's all I want. I want there to be a right. MacGuffin, and I want it to be like, you know, Thor versus mm-hmm. Colossus, and, right. you know, 10 pages of that, and that's all I want from this book. Yeah, yeah, no. I, and I would so, in a way, I would be down with it that if that was, I don't know, even three issues, but there was some weird level of like, once it gets to 12 and everything changes everything, I don't know. I, I It's weird. I just don't have any faith in those people. It, interestingly enough, I, I read an issue, I think, was it Secret Avengers? Because Nevitt was like, I really liked what Bendis was doing here with this fight between the, the new Avengers and uh, Riker Doc. It was new Avengers. Was it New Avengers? Thank you. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, I will pick up that issue. And then I read it and I was like, huh, well, that was a thing. 
like you know like it didn't it didn't work as well for me and I did have that weird moment of you know I, I guess it's a good thing that, that, that for the most part comics seem to have gone away from the fight scenes because I could see where this one there were elements of it that ended up working like especially the finale almost seemed sort of satisfactory and yet at the same way I was kind of like well it still was the same old no nah, not really like I'm kind of like you've got Thor you've got Iron you've got Power Man and it's two very different things or maybe it's even Iron Fist where Iron Fist does something awesome and manages to get in underneath the hammer and and KO Thor and it it was really drawn well and suspensefully and there were all these other elements that kind of added up pacing wise it was actually one of the better fight scenes I've ever seen but I uh, sh- should say have ever seen in a recent Marvel comic yeah. uh, and I, I, I yeah and I and I was still like nah it's not really I kind of wherever I'm at in superheroes it's not necessarily about them talking and it's not necessarily about them punching until you get someone doing it like to me if it's John Romita Jr. doing it I'm like it'll probably have some I'll probably want to see people punching JM asks what are your thoughts on Alan Murray Eddie Campbell's A Disease of Language I need to go back and revisit it, but I remember that, thinking that it was a gorgeous adaptation by Campbell of Moore's work. I, I had the same thing. I was like, I haven't read it in the longest time. I remember really liking it at the time. Yeah. yeah but that I, was also yeah. a really long time ago. Really long time ago. As I recall, Campbell really does do, because he's such a great artist, he really did, like, he just did such a smart and sensible adaptation of of Moore's work, and I actually ended up enjoying it more as comics than I did hearing Moore actually read those pieces. And as I recall, I think Disease of Language has a long interview at the end where Campbell interviews Moore about his magical belief system and how it works, and that was also tremendous reading at the time. JM also asks, how about an in-depth discussion career overview of Warren Ellis? Mm, in nine minutes? I'm not sure that's going to happen. No, but, but I, we should try it sometime. We should, although I'm not sure if that's one of those where I'm almost like, we do. We almost need somebody like Chad Nebbett in, in the mix. Ooh, ooh, yeah, because we're too close and dismissive. Yeah, we're too, yeah. You and I are yeah too much on the same dismissive page, exactly. Uh, he also suggests we do the same for Scalped, which honestly I've read minimal and did not particularly feel it so I, I yeah that is like the opposite of a gram book and it, I need to retry Scalped Scalped was uh, a fascinating experience where I read the first maybe two issues and for a guy who loves dark noir I was like huh this is actually too dark and too grim for me and I had to take a pass so <laughs> imagine my take on it yeah Mo exactly asks, uh, members of Graham McMillan's cult already know about his thoughts of Valiant Comics through his Robot 6 post First of all, if they're really the cult, I'm so sorry, everyone. Uh, I would like to know Jeff's memories or thoughts of Valiant titles during the 90s. Do you have any? Don't forget, Jeff. Be short. Well, the great thing is I can fulfill both of those requirements. I don't. I, I, didn't, I didn't read them. I didn't. I jumped offline when I came back to when I sort of was, I think I mentioned the other week, um, doing the security dude at like comic shows in the nineties, a lot of people were dumping their, um, their books for super cheap 
uh, the dealers, you know, because they would buy all these things to get variant covers, but then they'd have 300 issues of like Ghost Rider or something to get the glow in the dark variant. So they would dump them for super cheap at these shows and not muddy the waters of the comic shows. I could have picked up a ton of Valiants back then and did not. It just didn't seem to have any appeal to me. Um, well then, he also asks which Downton Abbey characters could you see in a prequel comic book series or a one shot? What would be who would be your ideal creative teams? Good I question. I'd love to see young Carson. Oh yeah, Carson would be great with him on the vaudeville strip done by like uh, Roger Langridge. Yeah, with I mean really, would that not be absolutely spectacular? Um, absolutely, fantastic. I would read. Uh, let's see, Chris Samney could illustrate a uh, cousin Matthew at war flashback. Mm, mm, that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, the Dowager Countess, it wouldn't be a prequel, though. It would just be her traveling around the world for some reason and just passing scathing remark after scathing remark in other culture. Yes, drawn by Tony Millionaire. That would be the best. <laughs> I, I think we've done it all, right? I just... Well, no, because I was, I was going to say, I also would love to see the um, romantic loves of young Thomas uh, as drawn by um, like Jean-Paul Leon and written by somebody who Devin Grayson I don't know wait, somebody wait, who's Thomas Thomas the yeah. annoying uh, the annoying gay folly in waiting yeah yeah he'd be I would love to I think I like the way he looks I would totally love to see uh, like a, a, a boys love manga style of him like maybe written by the person who does antique bakery and drawn by Jean-Paul Leon um, is, is that who I'm thinking of who's the guy who drew that um, uh, one of J. Michael Straczynski's books like he's really good with cheekbones. That's why I keep thinking of him. He's and uh, I think I think it is. Is he the guy who drew Earth X? Is that John Paul? Yes. Leon? Yeah. 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 I think he'd be great. He'd draw a great Thomas. And then I would, even though the character drives me nuts, I would love to see the adventures of uh, Bates and Lord Grantham during the the war. Oh God! Uh, how yes. They came to that bond would be together. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but but who you would have to also, get that? I'm Bates, right Bates drives you mad, but you'll want a Thomas series. Schism. The podcast is over now. <laughs> this ends here. Drop the mic. Walk away. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, who who would do the? Uh, God, who would do that series? Oh, the Bates and Grantham. Yeah, Nick Bertozzi. Nick Bertozzi is going to do that series for me. Oh yeah, that would be a good one. That would be a good one. Or you know who actually might be interesting would be. Um, although you don't really like his work much, Paul. Uh, Paul Gritz, Grist. Oh no, I no. He would he would actually do a really good Downton Abbey comic. Yeah, he'd be great. He'd be great because he's really good at people's ears. So I think he'd be perfect for Downton Abbey. Okay, let's move forward because we actually might finish. Woo! Amazing thing. Seriously. Yes. Um, someone in my that- comic shop brought up the fact that Jim Shooter is one of the few writers who created a lot slash edited a lot of material for enough independent projects to warrant the creation of a line of comics based on his older properties, similar to Kirby's Kirbyverse or Kirby Genesis. I don't know if this is a question, but what would slash should a Shooterverse of comics contain? Uh, you just have to mash Valiant and Defiant up together, wouldn't you? Is there actually enough so. other material? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm very confused. Which one was the one that was created from the gold key characters? Wasn't that Valiant? Valiant, yeah. But so, not. I mean, but, but there's only like three gold key characters in, in that and the rest he did create. 
Oh, okay. So yeah, see, I the between valiant and defiant, I'm like totally in the dark. <laughs> I'm like, mm. but I can't. Think I mean, anything beyond that, that that would be really fit in. Yeah, I don't know. Slutty Tigra? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I, it's funny. I don't really think of Shooter that way, but I have a sneaking suspicion. Um, I, I, Shooter's doing a pretty good job with his reappraisal of, of things. I, I, I seem to think of him as, a, as like the Legion of Superheroes. Oh, yeah, I guess... I, well, I suppose if you took characters from Legion of Superheroes, New Universe, Valiant, and Defiant, you could... No, no, because like, he, no, he says independent games. projects. But isn't New Universe like an independent project? I guess, but it's owned by Marvel, which surely is not an independent project. Oh, I see. So you're talking about, yeah. I don't know. Hmm. Well, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I mean... Gary, uh, Gary, uh, we, we don't know. Sorry. Sorry. It's a good question. And I, I Gary, who may be the same Gary or a different Gary, then asks, what is the best homage comic you have read to a previous author or writer or comic book? Oh, God. That's rough, because I should yeah. really know that. Uh, I, like I should have a I'm list sure of top. I'm not sure if it's an explicit right. homage, but Alan Moore Supreme is a, a straight up love letter to 1950s um, Superman. It's the point where right. one of the stories is a 1950s Superman plot. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and that that might that might be what I'm thinking. Really, I just said you know all star all star Superman. It's not an mm. explicit thing, but All-Star Superman, I think, is a really good... Uh, again, I'm, I'm not really thinking of homages as much as just tributes. Cause I was say, well, I, tributes or pastiches, yeah, exactly. The New, Fr- um, the New Frontier mm-hmm. as well has some really nice work in it. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there's some lovely stuff that, uh, that um, Moore does, like his tribute to Gil Kane in that awesome comics one-shot I thought was really lovely. That was very sweet of him. Of course, a lot of people remember Pog, the one shot in Swamp Thing that is one part Walt Kelly's Pogo and one part James Joyce and one part Swamp Thing story. I think that's that's kind of an amazing little piece. Uh, for that matter, David Lasky's Boom Boom Number 2, which is the biography of James Joyce told using panels appropriated from the origin of Marvel Comics, is fucking awesome. Oh my like, god. Is... <laughs> yeah, now I want to read that. Yeah, you would you would love that. That is actually, I think, one of the major formalistic successes to me of of twentieth century comics. I, I don't know. There would be a lot. There would be a lot there. That's one that I you know we really should punt or come back to because that's because one of the things I love and adore about comics is that there's so much homage and self referential like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah, exactly. He then asks, what is the best parody comic you have read to a previous author, writer, comic book? And his example is Grant Morrison's Doom Force special, which really might be my favorite. Mm, mm. Yeah, that I one was l- I love the Doom Force special. Yeah, that's one I'm really going to have to come back on. That That is actually really good. I know that there's one on the tip of my brain that I'm like, it's such a dead-on great parody. I don't know. I'll, I'll say that. Also, a, a lot of the early issues of Excalibur. Mm-hmm with Claremont mm-hmm. and Davis uh, have fairly um, blunt parodies out there that, that are, are a lot of fun to look back on. Oh, yeah. Um, McGavison, McGavison mm-hmm. asks, having just read my comments back, what was his comment? Oh, where is episode 10.2 in iTunes? What's his question? Oh, I don't know. I'll have to end it up. I thought it was up there. <clears throat> yeah, he asked... 
he thinks that makes him sound a little ungrateful and demanding. He's really not. So he replies again and say thanks for all your hard work that you put into this podcast. It's all Jeff. Seriously, Jeff edits them. I just talk for a couple of hours. Everyone should be giving Jeff love slash money for what he does. Um, I will take that love slash money. I would love to figure out a way for us to get paid off of this. I mean, no offense <laughs> to you listeners. I like providing this service to you, but at, but I was like sitting down the other week trying to figure out my, my a work schedule for myself for my other writing, and I was like, dear God, this podcast. And I honestly, I don't necessarily know if like we turned around and we were getting tons of money for it, if that would make it like any more or less worth it I it would just be easier for me to justify for myself when I'm in like you know hour four of because of, I hate listening to my own voice so the podcasts are always you, an you, amazing you and me experience. both by the way I hate yeah. listening to my own voice as well <laughs> uh, he then asks yes because we're going to get to these questions Jeff we're so close we're so close if manga was released in color and at the size of an American comic, priced like an American comic, would you prefer to buy that over the regular sized black and white volumes? No. Yeah, if, I would if have American to agree. comics were shaped and priced like manga, I'd much prefer that. Yeah. Uh, did Jeff ever get around to reading X Men Forever, and what did he think? You know, I read the first volume, and then I had actually the the library yeah, didn't have volume to do two. With my life. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. I actually liked the first volume a lot. I could see why you thought that it was batshit and fun. And it also felt like, um, it kind of felt like Claremont with, uh, it just felt like a really fresher take on, on the stuff that he does. I mean, he's always got characters and obsessions that he likes that he's like going to bring back that I'm always like, what? But, um, I liked it. I didn't, uh, it, but not enough to like turn around and buy volume two. And now that I have volume two checked out from the library, it's been so long since I've remembered volume one. I don't think I can remember it. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it was one of those things that when it was coming out, cause it was coming out bi-weekly, um, the frequency really helped. I think yeah. if I was given a month between them, I would have been like, eh, but the fact that it was every two weeks, you're like, yes, we're batshit comics. Let's go. Well, yeah, and even that first trade was great. If I hadn't had to wait six months between the second one, uh, I would have been there. But that first one, which, again, I barely remember, I really enjoyed his, like, okay, like, I am going to, like, have things happen that should be fun. The end. It was great. Two Diesel asks, can you go over Graham's blog post at Newsarama, the one where Eric Stevenson eviscerates Marvel? Um, I'm going to punt this forward because I want to do it post-Image Expo because I think Image Expo is going to have to be put up or shut up because I think Eric Stevenson has been going to war with Marvel lately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, and also really promoting Image. And I think mm-hmm. the way that they have placed Image Expo, if Image Expo doesn't come away with everyone being like, Image is a force to be reckoned with, I think it'll be kind of fascinating. <laughs> So yeah, we'll see. That'll be a fun conversation next week because my my impression is is that uh, well we'll just see, we'll just see. Yeah. Chris Brown, and this is the last batch of questions, Jeff. <laughs> Seriously, um, I consider myself a Kirby fan, yet I realize I've only read his Marvel work. What would you say is the best of his latter day post Marvel work? Oh, sorry, DC work, he says. There was the Fourth World's Commandy, Omax the Demon, anything else? Yeah, there's the Losers, which is really, really fucking good. Yeah, the Losers are surprisingly good. You might not think it's good. And you mm-hmm. might, if you're like me, you don't like war comics. The Losers is an amazingly good comic. Yeah. yeah. Um, what's the best of his DC work? The Fourth World. 
Yeah, agreed. Although Commandy is very close in my heart, I have. Oh, to say. The, I, I, all of it's great. Right. But the fourth yeah, world yeah. is is just the best for me. Uh, and then yeah. possibly it'd probably go fourth world, and then the demon for me. I think. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I would have to say it's like fourth world, Commandy, demon, the losers. Uh, OMAC, and yet with this asterisk, which is that I think the first issue of OMAC is one of the best things I've ever read ever. Yes, like first issue of OMAC is is really close to a perfect comic. Yeah, absolutely. So much so that even the rest of the issues can't live up to it. So. Uh, it seems like for all of these, I vaguely heard, always heard that they were interesting and promising, but in the end unsatisfying because of editorial interference, cancellation, or simply curving, curvy leaving or what have you. Is this fair? Are any of them satisfying as a complete works, or are they all just tantalizing might have beens? I think OMAC is a tantalizing might have been. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually do think that all of them are tantalizing might have beens. Uh but how but do I also I put think this? I don't think that makes them any less satisfying in and of themselves, if that makes sense. Agreed. That's not yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the losers is not a tantalizing might have been. I think the losers is perfectly complete in and of itself. Hmm. And I think the demon is as well, to be honest with you. Huh. Fascinating. I'm not sure that I agree. That being said, I honestly believe, with the exception of the fourth world, and that's a very, very big exception, I do not believe that Kirby... I don't think that anyone... Hardly anyone was creating comic books back then with the idea of having something to be a complete unto itself. Like, I, I think every comic book at least back in that era has an even the most successful one by its definition has to have an aura of what might have been or what it might be which is what keeps you coming back for the next issue in a way Mm -hmm. you know it's a long time till you start hitting projects as oh here's the thing it becomes a complete thing it finished and then boom it's you know a complete thing unto itself that you can put on a shelf and people can read it all by itself like, yeah. There's there's just not a lot of that. And I think Kirby, of course, was trying to go with that with, with the fourth world, even as he was trying to create a, a larger sense, a bunch of books that he could then pass off to other people that he could essentially be the progenitor for. So... <laughs> Chris Brown continues, frankly, even his Marvel work, which I love, mostly ends with a whimper rather than a bang. I can't look back on any complete run of his and feel like it's satisfying from start to finish like I can with, say, Simonson's Thor or Claremont's X-Men. Interestingly, you can with X-Men, because I think X-Men really ends with a whimper. Um, right. Do you think there's any Kirby run on anything that makes for a satisfying whole, or are all of them, and I'm just completely full of shit? Now, I want to say something here, Jeff, very quickly. Yes. These questions, this list of questions, I stopped uh, with the last question before we started recording the first podcast where we responded to the questions. So I know that in the comments thread, there are more comments and questions following this. Nonetheless, this is my cutoff point because it's when we thought we were going to answer them all. Oh, really? I haven't looked. There were more questions? There were more. There were more. And one day we might get to those. Anyway, (laughs) this means our last question is actually, is Chris Brown full of shit? <laughs> Chris, you're not full of shit. No. I just want to say that. Yeah, I agree. I, I love Kirby, but yeah, I just, I don't think it would be hard for me to actually, again, I just, mm, uh, what can we, like Kirby's like the Beatles, you know, well, no, he's not like the Beatles because the Beatles then ha- were able to like, 
like there was a stage during the when the Beatles existed where albums became albums as we knew them, right? But before that, albums were basically collections of singles, you know? And I believe that that's the case with the vast majority of Kirby came from that school, um, you know, and, and, and in a way still belonged to it. So as even when he started moving toward the idea of complete story, a complete thing unto itself, I think, it, yeah, it just, it eluded him, but that was, I think comparatively such a small, I love devil dinosaur. I do not think he had a master story that he was telling for devil dinosaur. You know? No, I, I, I think, I don't even think he had a master story. He was telling for fourth world, to be honest, despite all the mythology. I just don't think right. that's the way Kirby worked. Yeah. I, I, well, I think he had one angle of it, which is the Orion Dark Side stuff. But I'm yeah, but I think that's it. I th- and I also yeah. think that saying one day they're going to fight is not mm-hmm. a master plan. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I but I think I think you can make an argument that, noth- that none of them are satisfying whole. But I also think you can make an argument that all of them are satisfying whole because mm-hmm. with, I mean. With the exception of OMAG, does anything actually get cancelled in a cliffhanger? I don't think so. I don't think so because he had this, he was given the time to more or less wrap them up, and he, yeah. and he more or less did. Uh, not necessarily happily, but he did. But, so but, yeah. So I, what it is is everything might not be a coherent whole, mm-hmm. but I think it can be perfectly satisfying in and of itself. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I think that's it. In fact, what becomes the case, and maybe this is it, is is what happens is Kirby becomes the masterwork, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, suddenly, it you when you read all that stuff for him, you don't... No story has a coherent whole or piece, but suddenly you have... Your, your view of Kirby is... Your, is, is this is a creation I suppose by the end of it that is very satisfying in end of itself like Mm -hmm. it is it's interesting for a guy who like you know really drew himself in the corners and the fringes of things by the time you get to you know well before you get to the end of his career everything that he brings to the table and everything that is his style and his growth uh, is to me tremendously moving you know um uh, who he is like you have such a sense of him um by the end of it i feel in a in a way that is almost unique so again to me very much the way of like i sort of feel like that's why kirby can almost be this weird crossover between um f- fine art or high art you know in the sense of like if you go through a gallery show of like i don't know chuck close or something like that you know, you'll have pieces by him that you will love, and then you'll have pieces that you don't. But by the time you leave the show, if it's done its work right, you have this weird sense of who this person is and their who they are and how that's shaping what they're thinking about that you've seen ex- explored, laid out before you. Um, and I feel like that's the case with Kirby in a, in a, in a way. In, in a very real way. Yeah, no, I know. I think that Kirby was... I, no, I was going to say the first recognizable comics auteur, which is not true at all. There's Will Eisner and lots of others, but um, maybe the one, the first in superhero comics. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, 
I just finished reading Machine Man, which I'd never read before. Ooh, yeah. And it's published by an entire, it's published by a different publisher, but to me it has more in common with Fourth World, OMAC, mm-hmm. and Comanche, than it does with anything else that Marvel's doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Kirby, Kirby, Kirby in the end told Kirby stories. It didn't matter where he, where he did it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's this, it's this weird thing. I feel like you almost have to buy into Kirby to fully appreciate like late Kirby. But I think that when you do, it doesn't matter that everything gets cancelled. Or it does matter, but it matters in a different way. You start reading the story of Kirby. This is great because you've actually the we've sorry I only am cutting you off because you are coming in in your Beals above. <laughs> That's exactly why I'm doing it. <laughs> Kirby, 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 I'm done anyway. Yes. I made my point, which is, as much as I could ever make my point, which is, you don't read Kirby for the story as much as you read Kirby for the experience of reading Kirby. Right. Right. Exactly. Weirdly enough. And and if if you don't necessarily get that, Chris Brown it is totally okay. Someday, somehow, I think you probably will, because it happens. <laughs> it happens. Just just keep checking in every so often, and someday you'll find that entry point, and it'll it'll be awesome for you. I think you I think you should finish up now. I'm saying I'm like I'm also tuned. I'm sorry. What's that? I think you should finish up. Finish up. up I'm saying. I'm saying. Like, like I'm you, you should. You should close up. Close out the podcast. So people do not. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right. Yes. Of course. Last question. We did it. We did it. We did it. We did it. Actually, finally, finally. I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Punted. Punted. Questions. Questions. Sorry, sorry, everyone. But fine. Get to the end of the list. Fine. Fine. Good We did. We did answer a lot of questions, even if like Graham had to like turn into cosmic buzzing phone in order to do so um yes thank you so much listeners it really was thanks for your patience with it we will do it again soon we'll have to come up with a list of the stuff that we punted so that we can work it into our discussions of other comics because lord knows we haven't talked about weekly releases in a while now oh my god that's amazing holy cow okay so thanks listeners we will be back um we will talk to you next time bye, bye. 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 bye.